Steve and Kevin review Journey into Nyx for Vintage on episode 35 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 35 of So Many Insane Plays, our Journey into Nyx set review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. Announcements this week, the ban and restricted list update came and went with no changes in any format, much less vintage. Steve, uh, you seem to be pretty pleased with how things are on the ban and restricted front these days. What do you think about that no change? I think it's really smart. I think, you know, let the environment settle, get pe- let people get prepared for Magic Online vintage. And, you know, let's see how things shake out this summer and let's see what happens with, with vintage on Magic Online before making any changes. And in fact, if they have any changes they want to make in their back pocket, like let's say unrestricting something like gifts or some cards that we've, we've talked about in the past as potential unrestrictables, you know, I think that is well served by waiting until a more opportune time to pull the trigger um, and, um, you know, just to generate some additional excitement and buzz. Um, but, you know, to be completely candid, I don't think there's any card uh, on the restricted list right now that has pretty much wide consensus that could be unrestricted. While you and I both agree that GIFs is, is pretty weak and neutered by recent printings like Digger's Cage, it could still be a quite uh, a, a potent deck when, when built with Snapcaster Mages and Goblin Welders. So, um, you know, I think they're playing it safe and, you know, um, better, I think, to be conservative than um, than not and prudent and cautious than not when managing the banner restricted list. And I think the impact of the upcoming Magic Online release really can't be understated. Format is quite healthy right now. There's no reason to upset that for a marginal potential on restriction. I think that's I, right. I think you're right on. So we'll see. There's still stuff that could happen probably will happen, but the online metagame will be quite good and healthy, I think, given where we're at right now, plus another set or two. Mm -hmm. We have some upcoming tournaments, of course. In the Midwest area, we have Team Sirius Open on May 31st. That's a vintage legacy split tournament. So you get some vintage in, but you're going to play legacy too if you want to be in that event. (laughs) Take a look. Yeah. That's going to be a strange experience. A little bit of an acquired taste, kind of a pro tour sort of model for a small regional event, and uh, should be should be kind of fun. I'll be down at that one. Also, Team Series Open Columbus June 14, which is sharing the weekend with uh, Star City Games. So come play some vintage on Saturday, and then if you're a Legacy player or interested, go play Star City Legacy on Sunday. Also coming up on the West Coast, Vacaville, June 8, Vintage, and Steve, the very exciting Eudaimonia 93-94 Old School Tournament on May 18. You're going to be playing in that one. You're looking forward to it, right? Uh, it's going to be a blast. I, I just can't wait to see how the metagame shakes out and stuff. I don't know enough about the format just yet. I've heard a lot from you, of course, but sounds really, really cool. Steve, what do you have upcoming on the article front? Well, um, as you know, I've been really working hard on the Gush book. And I'm now in the home stretch. I com- I finished chapter nine, and I'm in 
10, 11, and 12, which are the final three chapters. Um, I'm hoping to get all 12 chapters done by the end of the month. I still have to write up the appendices and rewrite the introduction and the preface, but uh, it should be under editorial uh, supervision soon. I also have, have an article in the can on old school magic, and I'm starting the second in the series, but um, I can't really say anything more about that right now. But that's just something to, to look out for down the road. The update to your gush book will be on Eternal Central, right? That's correct. All right. It wouldn't be a set review without our prior sets report card. This time we're looking at Born of the Gods. And we didn't have a lot of individual cards to cover in that set, so this won't take long. But the results are still interesting, if small. Spirit of the Labyrinth was first up. Steve, you predicted six. I predicted eight. The actual was six. So spot on for you. (laughs) And our analysis was pretty good, I think. Uh, Just as you... Yeah, I know. Just as you once said for Young Pyromancer, though, uh, I wish that some of my local Grand Rapids events were were counted in these Morphling.D results because there is a local player in our tournament organizer, Justin, who has been playing Junk uh, Aggro Control that had Spirit of the Labyrinth in it. So I I was actually expecting this card to be a little more popular, as you can see, but I think our prediction was pretty spot on. But see, Kevin, I calculated that into my prediction. <laughs> That <laughs> my local results were not yet counted. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I knew respect. that some some tos wouldn't. No. I respect that. We were both spot on in that one. So. Yeah, we'll just have to grow the Grand Rapids metagame enough so that uh, we are reporting more results. Or, or or you need to take the deck lists and make sure that those are reported. Exactly. Next up, Pain Seer does not merit too much conversation. We both predicted zero, and the result was zero, as we expected. We'll see the future of Pain Seer. Interesting, though, Kiora the Crashing Wave. Now, I really tried on this one. Steve, you predicted two. I predicted four. I think I bought into the excitement a little too much. The actual was zero. So that goes down as a win for you, Steve. But really, everyone loses when Kiora is not seeing play in Vintage. I did try mightily, though. I did actually pretty well in a local event. But uh, I do think the time is not right for her. We do have something that we haven't done before in our report cards, but was brought to our attention in Theros, and I think one prior set as well. We didn't review a card, though, that did see some play. And in this case, it's Brimaz, King of Oreskos, the three-mana, three-four cat creature legend soldier who produces more cats as he attacks. We both predicted zero because we didn't discuss it. There was one appearance in a <laughs> sideboard, ironically, in the same deck, a mono-white aggro control deck, the same deck as Spirit of the Labyrinth. So uh, full disclosure, there was one appearance of a card we didn't even review, which is a lesson for us, I think. In the end, though, as usual, our predictions were pretty close. We missed Kiora, a little overzealous, and we didn't predict a single appearance of Brimaz. But all in all, we, we called Spear the Labyrinth pretty closely, Painseer, obviously, and our results are pretty close. 
but for such a small number of cards to review, the variance is not really worth analyzing. I long for the days, Steve, of the the set reviews where we're predicting six, seven, eight cards appearance. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least we nailed Spear of the Labyrinth, the card that actually saw play. Yeah, the um, the most important card from that set. We got it right. Could you maybe just speak to your experience with Kiora? Because remember, I was saying that my main argument in, in favor of Kiora is that it had specific synergies with, with Gush and in particular could supplement Jace. So that mm-hmm. in a deck a deck that could run, you know, that would consider running more than four Jaces, like a Gush deck might, uh, could use like one Kiora in addition to it. Uh, I think that's that was your configuration, was it not? I played with three Jace and three Kiora in a Lotus Cobra-based Gush list. And what you just described about Kiora was my experience. She was very synergistic in a number of ways with both the Cobra and the Gush, and ironically with Jace in a few cases when they've had both of them in play. The challenge I found with Kiora was that she was simply not good enough on her own, though. When you draw and play Jace, if you get those coveted Lotus Land Jace kind of draws, he can take over a game. He, by himself, he can play the control role, he can play the combo role. Kiora is not capable of doing that. I had a couple of games in testing and in the tournament setting where I had a very early Kiora, either turn one or two, and I was forced to make difficult choices because she doesn't have a default, de facto, by herself, take over the game kind of role. I did use her plus ability to nullify an early dark confidant, thereby extending the game and keeping her and me alive. I played the aggressive double explore kind of play that we talked about, and it was okay, but it kind of pales in comparison to the three cards you see the first time you activate Jace. So there was one turn one win that I had that was facilitated by Cobra plus Kiora, where Jace wouldn't have done the job. The explore aspect uh, was the only thing that got me that turn one win. So basically I saw all sides of Kiora in that, and she's just not consistently powerful enough to really put that deck over the top right now. I'll keep it on the back burner. Future iterations will probably have fewer Kioras, one or two. You ran you ran Lotus Cobra, though, didn't you? Yes, I did. If that deck were structurally positioned well right now, we would have seen Kioras in a couple top eights, you know, in the kind of configuration I described, maybe four Jace, one Kiora. Yep, exactly. The deck is not well positioned in the metagame right now. Without being overly immodest, I suspect that our predictions were probably going to be as accurate as anyone who, who could predict appearances, as, at least as reported on Morphling.d. We've gotten pretty good at, at zeroing in on sort of what cards we'll see playing in the top eights. Yeah, I would agree with that. And there are a few cases where we've been off and the primary driver has been uh, fluctuations in the metagame. And I think that I was a little too eager to speak to how Kiora synergizes with that deck and I was not very conscientious in my prediction of four appearances for the fact that Gush is just uh, ill-positioned in general, as you put it. So I think Kiora might still see her day. Yeah. If, if that deck is good, she is good in it. I mean, your testing shows it's a playable card. Definitely. Question, Definitely. Question is whether it will. Yeah. So keep that on the back burner for those of you who are Gush players. Uh, if you're playing with the Lotus Cobra type build, at least, I, I think she's definitely viable. If Jace is ever restricted, she, she, could, she could easily see a lot of play. Interesting point. Yes, that's right. If Jace were restricted in that deck, I could easily see one Jace and two, three, maybe even four Kioras in the long run to make up the ground, yeah. So we'll keep an eye on all these Born of the Gods cards, but now is the time for our journey into Nyx. We asked for your suggestions on cards to review in this set via Twitter, and you didn't disappoint us. 
Most of the cards that we're going to discuss here today were requested or mentioned by our listeners. Thank you for that. It's a good model for future set reviews, I think. First up, we have Aegis of the Gods. Aegis of the Gods is one white enchantment creature, human soldier. You have hexproof, 2-1. This you have hexproof or you have shroud model is not news to vintage. In fact, there are several heavily played cards currently that have this similar functionality. Leyline of Sanctity is very popular. Witchbane Orb is very popular. Most of those examples uh, are for workshop decks. And True Believer sees some fringe play already, which is obviously the most similar card to this in terms of it being a creature body at two mana with two power. But I think that the lesson from the existing cards, Sanctity and Witchbane Orb, are that those effects are coveted by workshop decks and they're coveted at either free from the Leyline or colorless mana from the orb. I, I think we should deviate from our usual anal- analytical frame here and begin by reminding our listeners sort of what are the key cards that Hexproof addresses in Vintage. Well, sure. I think in terms of the cards that see play, the, the Leyline and the orb, the key card that they're targeted at is Oath of Druids. That's right. Singularly, with additional splash benefit against Tendrils, of course, as well as... Uh, fringe benefit for things like Thought Seas and Lightning Bolts and oh, and Hercules Recall. Cabal Therapy. Cabal Therapy, yes. And Hercules Recall is another one where Workshop yeah. Decks benefit. But aside from that, the, the list is short and potent, but there's not a lot of utility benefit from these kind of hexproof cards in Vintage. And speaking for myself, I don't find that using hexproof to fight Tendrils is an especially good strategy anyway because workshop decks are, and I think aggro control decks are all much better disrupting the engine that is a storm deck rather than trying to address the wind conditions targeting. That's a, that's a good way to see yourself uh, just blown out by a chain of vapor or something that removes the witchbane orb. So in terms of utility, Aegis of the Gods does have a place in Vintage. The mana cost of one white is obviously playable. There are already several creatures. The mana cost to power ratio of Grizzly Bear we've talked at at length. That's obviously playable. The effect, though, is, I think, pretty far down the list of effects you would want on a white Grizzly Bear body, especially if you're trying to fight Storm or Oath. Either of those uses, there are far better choices. Such as what? When you're fighting Storm, Thalia is far superior. She is more fundamentally attacks a Storm deck, disrupts their ability to execute on all their game plans rather than just tendrils. So okay, I, I could say against Storm. What about Oath? Against Oath, you've if, if you're in mono white, then this card is still probably pretty good. But as soon as pretty you good. splash, is this the best thing you can do. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't think it's the best thing you can do. Because if you play this and they play Oath, then all they need to find is one of their numerous removal-type spells. Given that this is an enchantment creature, everything from Chain of Vapor to Nature's Claim to Swords to Plowshares works. Whereas a, card like, yep. whereas a card like Thalia, which is not a perfect answer to Oath, but a card more like, say, Kosali Pride Mage is better. A card like Meddling Mage is better. Meddling Mage? I don't I don't think I don't agree with that one. You don't think Meddling Mage is better at fighting Oath of Druids? No, because you, you play Meddling Mage naming Oath of Druids and their removal virtually all the removal remains on the same. So uh, well, except that the the same applies to this creature. This creature has more types and they can play Oath before they remove this. Yep. They can, for example, play Oath and then Nature's Claim this on your end step and kill you out of nowhere. That play is not available to them with Meddling Mage. I, I, 
this is pretty minute differences, uh, I will grant. I just think that if one of your goals is to disrupt uh, an oath deck, that this creature is not as good at that and also not as flexible as other creatures. And let's not forget that something like Thalia, Meddling Mage, or Pride Mage are also good in other matchups. So uh, Pride Mage, for example, stands out at that. It's flexible at against Oath and against Workshops. Thalia is flexible against Control decks and against Combo decks and Disruptive in general. Uh, we haven't mentioned something like Gadok Teague, for example, that's just flexible against multiple decks. I don't think the Hexproof, while it is kind of a silver bullet against Oath, merits putting this card in over all these other more flexible and powerful ones. In the mono-white builds, which do exist and in which... True Believer has seen at least fringe play, then this card I think is somewhat appropriate. And I think it would be at least in the sideboard of a deck like that, because it's obviously easier to cast than True Believer. And and while it does have one fewer toughness, it's still functionally identical. Those decks run things like Ghost Quarter and Strip Mine and Wasteland. So the difference in converted of, of casting costs from one white to white white is pretty significant benefit. So anywhere you would play True Believer, you would play this card over it, I believe. That said, mono-white creature decks, pretty rare in the format. True Believer has uh, very few appearances in the last year. And, and, and those mono-white decks have also gotten a boost in the last year, and so the creature, the creature choices have become a lot more competitive, given Leon and Arbiter, Spirit of the Labyrinth, Thalia, Haven Mind Sensor, Glow Rider, Grand Abolisher. I mean, the list is actually quite long at mono-white. What does Grand Abolisher do again? That's the white, white grizzly bear from M12 that says during your turn, your opponents can't cast spells or activate abilities of artifacts, creatures, or enchantments. It's the city of solitude, basically, which is seeing about as much as play as true believer is. So I think this card is a sideboard card in mono white and occasionally in white X beats decks, but the white X decks have, I think, more powerful options. Somebody will probably play this in the sideboard. And it will be good. It's also worth noting that the Aegis is a human, so there's plenty of synergy there with existing mostly junk humans decks with Caverns of Souls. So there's additional synergy there. Okay, let me let me just interject. I think um, Kevin, I think this guy is. I think you know, I don't think you're giving enough credit against both decks. So I mean, we we do have to line him up against the alternatives, but I mean, he's essentially a Graph Digger's Cage. That while it doesn't stop, it doesn't stop a say a Yawgmoth spell, which Oath decks are certainly capable of doing. It does stop things like duresses, which Oath decks might have, um, and they may also do things. For example, does it prevent Fate Seal? I'm I'm sorry. Are you referring to activation of Jace the Mind Sculptor? Yeah. Yeah, it does. That's... Yeah. So I mean, I definitely think this card has. I think this card is probably as strong as it gets for white weenie decks against Oath. I I would prefer him certainly over Metally Mage. I think he's I think he's basically comparable to Cage. I do agree with you that it's disconcerting that a Nature's Claim can take it out um, because he happens to be an enchantment creature. But I think that this is probably the like the best anti-oath white you know white weenie creature of all time. Why then are not people playing True Believer? Well, I think the answer to that is really easy. You, if you play white weenie, you're not going to be just be, you're not going to be playing mono white in most of these cases. There are some mono white decks, mm-hmm. but there's you know you're going to be playing like white green, white green red, white black. You could even go four or five colors. I've seen that before, and 
there are other cards in the set that incentivize that. Um, but the big difference is white, white is just a tremendous cost difference. White color and a colorless is just huge. I mean, that's why we spent so much time on Spirit of the Labyrinth and, and thinking that it, it might uh, it might see play. I'm really impressed by the the creatures like Spirit of the Labyrinth and, and this. And I, I think Spirit of the Labyrinth and Aegis of the Gods can certainly go in the same deck. And you just pile up these effects, Spirit of the Labyrinth, Aegis of the Gods, Thalia. You've got a really potent uh, set of tactical interactions that can really constrain and bottle up uh, you know, in any, pot- any powerful vintage deck. Well, I guess it's just a matter of degree then. Yeah. We both we both acknowledge that it is possible. I just think that the the precedent is there and that, that this effect is not that highly yeah. valued in those decks. Okay, let's ask this question. How many how many appearances has True Believer had in the last year? One. Let's just okay, one. Not uh, almost- hold on. There since the, the, the most recent appearance was in February of this year. The prior appearance was in July of 2013. Not, not at all surprised. Yeah. But I think the big difference, again, is that that costs white, white. How, how many appearances have we had at Kasali Primage? A card that used to be quite see quite a bit of play in Vintage. I, I suspect it's not going to be... I would just say it'll probably be under half dozen. Uh, you, are, you are very close. In the year 2014, it looks like there were eight. Okay. So... I think in I think that this card, uh, you know, we'll see more. Pl- I mean, well, let's not pr- make predictions yet, but I think that this card is definitely better than both of those. It, again, it, it's like a graph digger's cage that you can attack with against Oath, and it it certainly has uses in other matches. Again, it'll stop Cabal therapy in uh, the Dredge matchup. It'll stop Tendrils. It's a real pain in the butt against Storm. Yeah, it's not going to stop their draw, whatever, but it is going to stop their hand disruption, and it's going to stop their Hercules on your null rod, it's going to stop. You know, they're going to have to find that that nature's claim to deal with this card or their chain of vapor. Um, I think the capacity to play this on turn one and to play it, you know, off of other colored mana sources is a gigantic difference. But part of the reason I think Kasali Pride Mages has declined is because these decks aren't aren't white green anymore. That's right. Correct, right? I mean, the, you you generally want to go into other colors, not the most common configuration is definitely junk, white, green, black. Okay. Well, yeah, I I, I definitely think this card is vintage playable. Put that out there. Mm-hmm. I think the effect is 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 very useful in vintage, and um, I think he's his casting cost makes him a turn one play, so that's a huge difference from the other the other cards. You know, um, and because he attacks, he gives you you can get you know tempo from him. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't see what's not to like. <laughs> I, I guess he's he's weak in the workshop matchup. But that's kind of a given. He's weak in uh, you know he's he's not necessarily terrible in in against blue control, right? I mean, because if you have null rod out, it protects your null rod from Hercules. Um, <laughs> no, this guy seems great. That's a pretty corner case you just constructed for this card being anything other than a grizzly bear against Jace decks. That's fine. I mean, that's fine. Uh, uh, let me know. clarify for our audience's benefit. Are you expecting main deck or sideboard play? I think you'll probably see a bit of both, but primarily sideboard. Okay, I would agree with that. And I would expect that no one will ever bring this card in against a control deck. For sure. So you're not going to see this card facing down against Jace very much, if ever. Mo- almost every creature in such a hypothetical deck is better against control than this card. To put it another way, I wouldn't play this over any other common junk aggro control creature. I would play, I would play this over Meddling Mage. Well, that's what I'm saying. Junk, commonly played junk okay. creatures. And, and what are the list of those right now? Again? Dark Confidant, Gadok Teague, Pride Mage, Tarmogoyf, Mind Sensor, Spirit of the Labyrinth, Stoneforge Mystic, Kataki, 
Deathrite Shaman. I, I might play this over Tarmogoyf. I, you're, you're, if you have Tarmogoyf in your deck, and you have this in the sideboard, you're going to remove Tarmogoyf to put this card in against Jace decks? Not against Jace decks. Well, that's what I'm asking. No. Okay. I didn't think so. I'd also like to add that the fact that this is a human not only synergizes with Cavern of Souls, but also Mayor of Averbrook. But those Mayor decks, which were relatively common in 2013, have basically fallen off the map. Why is I do not know. It probably the rise in sophistication of Oath of Druids decks. That would be my anticipation. Well, that's my guess as well. But doesn't that make this the perfect card for solving it, that hole? Um, except that if this effect were that good, wouldn't the current batch of creature decks have evolved to include True Believer already? I mean. If this effect is that coveted, it's not that hard to make white-white in such a deck. Yes, it is sometimes prohibitive when you get the two-land wasteland draw, and this card will shore that kind of situation up and improve it. But if Oath were really the thing that keeping this kind of deck down by itself, I think they would have evolved otherwise. The simple truth is that Mayor of Aberbrook has put up exactly one top eight in the whole year of 2014, and that was in January. Let me ask you a question. Are there any white decks that could use this that aren't Survagro decks? So like, would like an Oriok Salvagers use this instead of, say, Cage for any reason? Well, if you're Bomberman... And okay. you would like to fight Oath. This is obviously clearly better than Cage for you. So that's my think, assessment as well. Yeah, I think there's a case there. But go, to go back to my prior point, if you're Bomberman and you need to fight Oath of Druids, I really prefer, say, Meddling Mage for that role. If you want, if you want an aggressive creature to fight Oath of Druids, or something that actually removes the Oath rather than just letting Oath sit out there and having you get blown out on your end step. That's really the biggest reason why I don't like this card as an anti-oath technology. Because you are playing this creature with the intent that they can play Resolve Oath of Druids, right? And, and you nullify it, much like Cage does. Then you're incentivized to commit creatures to the board and, and continue to fight them and try and race. But a simple removal on this, just like with Cage, and they get to activate Oath of Druids and then proceed to win. I much prefer cards that disrupt the presence of Oath on the board. It's kind of like buying you an extra turn's insurance to deal with their answers. Well, I think that cuts both ways. I mean, uh, you you know, Kasali Prime Mage only deals with one Oath. If they draw two, you need a second Kasali Prime Mage. This deals with an unlimited number of Oaths in play. No, that's fair. Yeah, that's completely fair. So you have to overload if you're playing a deck like this with answers to Oath. You have to have multiple Cage, Pride Mage, Nature's Claim effects for that very reason. And that is, that's one of the reasons why Cage is so valuable. That's a good point. I, I, don't want to, I don't want to imply that I think this card is unplayable, just that the conditions for its playability have sort of existed already in the presence of True Believer and the, and the popularity of these decks. And True, Be True Believer's near non-existence, I think, points to the fact that this effect of you have Hexproof, while it has utility, is not good enough to justify playing an otherwise weak creature. Hmm. Sideboard play, if you look at True Believer, this would replace that and probably amplify its sideboard play. So I think that directs me on how I feel about its Okay, make a quantity. prediction. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to say 2. I'm going to say 6. Interesting. I like it. I like it when we have differences of that kind of opinion. Also the meta game just like we said with prior cards, the meta game will have a fair bit of influence on this result. I think that's good for Ages of the Gods. Let's move on to one that's I think really close to both of our hearts and that is Mana Confluence. This is a land tap and pay 1 life, add 1 mana of any color to your mana pool. Now, it's pretty obvious that this is City of Brass's descendant, 
And it's also pretty obvious that paying the life as opposed to any time a City of Brass becomes tapped gives you more control over your life total than with City of Brass, but only in a few select cases. Unfortunately for us five-color players in Vintage, those cases actually come up fairly often in Vintage, (laughs) primarily because of Tanglewire, but also because of Rashid and Port occasionally. So Steve, you're no stranger to playing City of Brass in a number of different archetypes. Does this notion of swapping the tap damage for life payment mean that you're just immediately a mana confluence instead of City of Brass? I think so. Um, I guess the one question I, I have would have is, can you stack the damage with City of Brass to play something? That's the only advantage City of Brass has over this, right? Yeah, I think you're right. There is a real corner case where you could gain life in response to a City of Brass activation, like, say, with Nature's Claim, where Mana Confluence wouldn't allow for that play. Right. I can can honestly say that I've never made that play. City of Brass is also better if you have Lich in play. (laughs) Yes, yes. And the number of people that that matters to is probably, outside of this podcast, is probably pretty slim. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think think that's right. Yeah. This card will just replace City of Brass. We We can pretty much figure out how much play this is going to get. We All we have to do is just look at the last whatever couple months of City of Brass. Can you pull that up? I can. I already have. And the results are approximately 50 appearances for City of Brass in 2014. And how would that break down since our last podcast? So since our prior set review, yeah. it's about a third of that. So they're probably between 15 and 20 appearances since our last set review. Well, that's exactly what I would predict for this card going forward. Yeah, and I think that this it's pretty hard to argue with that assessment as a baseline. I think it does merit interesting conversations relative to the mixture of City of Brass, Mana Confluence, and Gemstone Mines, however, right. in decks like Dredge or uh, Burning Tendrils. What do you think about that? So this card is automatic four of them Burning Tendrils. Naturally. Um, and in Dredge. My Burning Tendrils list with, with um, Oath of Druids runs for... Uh, forbidden orchards so you know because it supports oath uh i think i had two gemstone mines Mm -hmm. i would uh i would probably keep those um this card is city of brass is better than gemstone mines card better but you don't really want to have six cards that every time you tap you lose life i I do think that this card could uh will i mean this will obviously see play in the dredge decks as well so this is going to be in dredge this is going to be in cabo this is going to be it is interesting to think if having eight City of Brasses changes anything. I think that's the one thing that could make this see more play than City of Brass did. So do you have any thoughts on that? I don't think that it is. I think it is interesting. And I don't think that the notion of having eight City of Brass opens anything up in Vintage that's not already there today. I think it's an interesting thought exercise, but I can't imagine what you can do with that that you can't do with Gemstone Mine today. The, it would be a different equation if there were a five-color deck in Vintage that was designed for the long game, but there isn't at the moment. Right. Like a workshop deck. Yeah, a five-color stacks deck would, would much prefer to play four-mana Confluence and, and two to four City of Brass than any number of Gemstone Mines, I think. At least certain builds would. Or, or Tendo Ice Bridge. <laughs> yeah, I know. So... I guess that's really the the thing, is that Gemstone Mine is not currently being used in decks that are designed to tap it more than three times. I mean, ignoring the fact that that's a tautology, decks that would want to tap it more than three times. You can get into some strange games with Dredge, where you expend your Gemstone Mines. 
So I think it's worth considering that any dredge deck using gemstone today might go to the six or eight City of Brass plan. I think that's right. But that doesn't actually materially affect the number of mana confluence that we'll see play because those lists will start with four mana confluence every time. So I think it's an interesting thought exercise, but it doesn't change our evaluation of this card. I have mixed feelings about this card. I mean, it sucks to see City of Brass marginalized in Vintage, but it should make it easier to get some old-school City of Brasses for old-school magic. (laughs) You know, you've touched on another issue that I definitely wanted to address with this card, and that is because it is so functionally similar to City of Brass, I have a feeling that Vintage will be slow to adopt it. Meaning, I think a month from now when this card is available... There's going to be a lag. There's going to be a lag. I think you're going to see a lot of players still just playing with City of Brass because they'll be like, oh, I don't care. Yeah, okay, I might lose a point to Tangle Wire once in in, in 50 matches. I don't know. I'll I'll just I'll do it later. <laughs> well, yeah, the, we haven't uh, we haven't sort of canvassed all the advantages that Mana Confluence has over City, but certainly in Dredge, it has the advantage of being able to be tapped with a uh, what's the name of that card in the graveyard that allows you to tap any card for black or, or for green or white. Yes, Riftstone Portal. This yeah, Riftstone Mana, Portal. Mana Confluence is superior, far and away superior, if you're playing with Riftstone Portal. And there's also the the black land that turns all things into swamps. Urborg. Yeah. So I mean, with both of those cards, you get a, just a huge advantage with with Mana Confluence. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so that's no doubt. So there's more than just the Tangle Wire we should import issue, and both Urborg and Riftstone Portal have seen a lot of play in various decks, not just Dredge either. Some other creative. Uh, black-based Dark Depths decks use Urborg, and those decks, if they were inclined to use Gemstone Mine, for example, in the past, would almost certainly use Mana Confluence now. So that's a couple of corner cases, but it will be the minority of the reason. I still think that a month from now you're going to see dredge decks, especially budget dredge decks, because ironically... The budget vintage dredge decks, players that have those are either proxying or have all the cards by now, and it doesn't fit into one's budget in a, as a regular vintage player to shell out the 40 to $80 it's going to cost to get your set of mana confluence. So I have a feeling that, ironically, you're going to see vintage budget players not investing in this card for a while. Um, can can we just sort of, is there any advantage, any advantage besides sort of the extremely tiny corner case that we mentioned that this has over, uh, that City of Brass has over this, besides the sort of casting the life spell like Nature's Claim or Lich? Can you think of anything else? Yes, there is one other corner case involving Platinum Angel. If you have Platinum Angel in play and you're at zero life, you cannot pay life to activate Mana Confluence, whereas you can tap a City of Brass, take the damage, and stay alive. Got it. Plat- Platinum Angel has seen play in Vintage, but it's it's been quite a while. And when it did, it was not necessarily in City of Brass or five color City of Brass type decks. Nevertheless, the situation could come up and. Who knows, at some future point, a Platinum Angel deck might become a thing in Vintage again. There was one appearance of Platinum Angel in January of 2014 in a workshop deck. (laughs) That deck was... (laughs) Sorry, I was just laughing because that deck wasn't actually mono-brown. That list was very interesting, played by uh, Kevin Ponish. Espresso Stacks, he called it, but it was a Goblin Welder Cavern of Souls type list that he played at uh, one of the local Livonia tournaments. Steve, are you ready to make your prediction then? I think I've heard it sort of already, but go ahead. Well, 
this is going to see play in combo decks like Burning Tendrils. It's going to see play in Dredge. Um, we will probably see play if anyone wants to play like a five color aggro or control deck. Um, it's, it's just going to be an anchor staple of the format. And that, it, but I agree there may be some lag as people transition or to, uh, to the new the new tech card and or way to wait to acquire them. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna play it safe. When's our next set prediction, though? We'll, we'll probably do like a M15 or something. Yeah. All right. I'll say I'll say 18, 19, 20. I'll say I'll say 18. Well, I can't really argue with your logic at all, and I have no inkling to go above or below you. I'm comfortable with what you predicted, but looking at the recent history of City of Brass. I'm just wondering what ratio of those players of the 20-ish appearances in the last couple of months, I'm just wondering what ratio of adoption there will be by those players. I'm reasonably comfortable that some portion of the appearances uh, will be reduced by players who just continue to play City of Brass. So I think I'm going to take the under on your prediction just because of that effect. And I'm going to say, let's say 15. I think one one reason to suspect higher is that there's probably going to be more tournament activity during the summer. The last three months are probably like the lo- the, the lowest levels of tournament magic tournament activity, I would suspect, out of the year. You know, the, the February... February is, is like no man's land in magic, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, I expect there's going to be more tournaments, more activity, more interest. And Burning Tendrils remains a very good deck. Yeah. I mean, people are also interested in playing combo right now, although they're using dual lands, yeah. not five-color I I just you know I think this will be a slight incentive because of that the issue with workshops you don't automatically have to take damage. Yeah. So your 18 might be more accurate taking into account the slow adoption. Yeah. And I'd be comfortable with that. I think I think in total this is one of those situations where our our summary is almost certainly correct. It's just a matter of how the details shake out. Yep. All right. That's pretty exciting. I like mana confluence. Moving on, however, we have next Dakra Mystic. Dakra Mystic is blue creature merfolk wizard, blue and tap. Each player reveals the top card of his or her library. You may put the revealed cards into their owner's graveyards. If you don't, each player draws a card, and it is 1-1. So what we have here is a 1-mana 1-1 merfolk wizard, which is a configuration that has seen play in Vintage. 1-mana 1-1 merfolk slash wizard. So the body is relevant in Vintage. Merfolk is still a thing, just having won the championships and seen play since then, of course. Same, Same with wizards as well. Wizards is a highly relevant creature type, so this falls into either of those. The ability, however, is ostensibly a source of card advantage in that you could draw cards or mill cards, which is a form of card advantage, but it's symmetrical. Yeah, so so we can say at the outset before we delve into it and analyze it that if the ability is useful, it will basically determine whether it sees play. The ability will determine whether it sees play, and if it's useful, it might. If, if it's not, it won't. Um, so we can just focus in on that. Let's break down this ability into um, into its constituent parts. So first of all, it is at the highest level, you, you, as you point out, it is a source of potential card advantage. But let's break it down into what exactly it does. So first, it reveals cards of both players' library. Mm-hmm. That that can be pretty significant in and of itself. Just the information, because I mean, one of the one of the key advantages I like about Delver is that I often keep a fetch land in play so that I can decide whether I want to draw that card that I reveal in my draw step or not. Uh, so Definitely. Information is a source of virtual card advantage and card selection. Um, Interestingly, though, it, using that particular example, 
the fact remains that if, if you're using the fetch land shuffle interaction, this card already has a built-in way to circumvent that without the fetch land. Because if the card itself is undesirable, you can put it in the graveyard to draw. The card is undesirable. Oh, well, we haven't gotten to that yet. So I know, but the, the point is, is that that knowledge that you gain by whether or not you want the card is already baked into the second half of this ability. Yeah. Okay. The second thing is, you may put the revealed cards into the owner's graveyards. So, Which is a source of virtual or real card advantage in Vintage for a number of reasons. Yeah, so the crucial piece is that you have to decide whether to put both cards in the graveyard or not. So, And if you don't, each player draws a card. So this is kind of a, um, at its essence, if you have to weigh the strength of the card, your card versus your opponent's. Mm-hmm. So let's go through some scenarios that will illustrate how we might how we might sort of weigh that. So let, let's just suppose that I, I have Dacra Mystic in play, and I flip and I activate it, and I reveal, let's say, Force of Will, and you reveal, name a card, Kevin. Dark Confidant. Dark Confidant. I can decide. We can both we can put both cards in the graveyard, or we can draw both cards. What would you like me to do? Assuming that I have another blue card in my hand with which to pitch cast that Force of Will, and assuming I have any other way to, say, interact with a Dark Confidant in general or possibly immediately, then I think I'd like us both to draw those. And what if you're the person who has the Dark Confidant on top of their library? In the reverse, I don't like that so much. I'm giving my opponent an answer to my Dark Confidant, and also my card is a little slower than theirs. Force of Will is obviously live as soon as you draw it, whereas all things being equal, Dark Confidant is not until next turn. Okay, so now that example sort of illustrated how this might work, let's go through some examples. Let's start with, you have a good card on top and I have a bad card on top, and then we'll do, I have a good card on top and you have a bad card on top. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do both good cards. We already did both good cards, and now then we'll do both bad cards. Mm-hmm. So you have a good card. Let's say you have Tinker on top, and I have, I don't know, Mox Pearl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bottom those cards. So who has the who is activating the Dakra Mystic in that example? I'm, I'm, I'm playing Merfolk, and I'm whatever. I'm playing yeah. Merfolk, and I, I let's say I reveal, okay, Wasteland instead. <laughs> I like they'd have Mox Pearl or Aether Vial. <laughs> yeah. I reveal like their value and you reveal Tinker. So, We're going to bottom those cards. Yeah, in this case, your opponent has a very good card. You're going to put those into the, the graveyard to deny them that card. It, interestingly, it could also be used to deny them mana. So if you like wastelanded them and you, they reveal a mana, a land, you could bottom that. Um, so you're just, you're, you're, you've constructed an example where you're using this almost exclusively as a fate seal. That's right. You could yeah. do that as well. Um, so let's, 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 before we delve into that though, let's, let's go back to the, yeah. the, the other scenario I mentioned. So I've got a really good card. You've got a terrible card. I'm going to dra- have us draw it. Yep. So, um, and then if we both have terrible cards, it depends, that's, but it's pretty context sensitive at that point. Yeah. If I'm trying to, yeah, if I want you to keep, terrible cards like i've i've stymied you on either threats or mana then i can just choose accordingly yeah so i mean for example if this is like my turn i and you're about to draw that terrible card i'll probably just have you draw the terrible card right let's not lose sight of the fact that you're giving your opponent an extra card in that situation it's not a fate seal leave it on top situation oh that's right because each player draws a card. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Um, so bad card or not, you are giving them a card. That's and speeding them to a better card in theory. I, I was thinking. I was thinking that you know I could activate it in my main phase. Have you draw a bad card? Yeah. So they're going to draw the bad card, but they'll draw it regardless. Right? In fact, if the card is bad, you're either you're speeding them past it either way. You're either putting it into their hand or discard pile. But either way you're not sticking them with a bad card. You're actually helping them get past it. So this activating this, uh, I mean, all things being equal in our, our current analogy, 
activating this when they have a bad card on top is is a bad thing for you either way. Right. So it's strongest when they have a good card. <laughs> it's strongest when your opponent has a good card on top that you can get rid of, or when you have a good card on top that you can get easier access to. So it's strongest in a vacuum. It's strongest when one or both of you has a good card. Because if they're both bad, then you're, if your opponent has a bad card, you're, you're helping them by get past it. If you have a bad card, you still might be helping your opponent by getting past either card. Yeah. So, but it's pretty clear, even from the simplest initial reading, that this card involves you drawing a card, so you'd prefer to be drawing a good card. The drawback of possibly giving your opponent a good card is something to be evaluated and or mitigated. So I guess the question in terms of whether this would see play is whether this kind of virtual card advantage is worth an inclusion. And or can you manipulate the circumstances such that you benefit more? Now it's vintage. Assuming it's your turn in general, you do benefit more from drawing a card because in theory you're going to get access to sorcery speed cards before your opponent does. Mm -hmm. So there's an inherent advantage just the tempo of the thing if you activate it on your turn. One thing I don't like about this guy though is the active you can't activate it with the, with the Cavern of Souls. And Merfolk tends to be very mana tight. And you also want to be attacking with all of your creatures all the time. You have to tap this guy. So I think that limits it in terms of being an, uh, a card or its applications in Merfolk. Uh, completely. For all those reasons and more. The fact that it activates for blue mana meaning means that you're going to cut yourself off of the coveted uh, the coveted uh, sequence for Merfolk, which would be turn one, one drop, turn two, Lord, turn three, another Lord, or two creatures. You're cutting yourself off of that great sequence that is... Not to mention holding up Cluster Storm or whatever. It seems like Definitely. if you activate this, you probably activate it at the end of your opponent's turn. I would say. That's fair. This seems like more of a either disruptive card for the mid-game, manipulating card draw somehow, or something of an engine card in a deck that wants to put cards in its graveyard that has more graveyard interactions than the average deck but not so much that you're dredge and going to get hated out yeah picturing a deck like dragon for example also decks that want very specific cards such that looting is of greater importance you said dragon yes <laughs> wow well in a dragon deck just milling a card is a, a a more useful ability than the average deck if you could you would mill all the time in dragon because it sets up part of your combo and there are a number of other decks the goblin welder based decks the thirst for knowledge based decks uh, obviously bizarre decks but this is too slow for those but uh those kind of decks will get additional benefit and of course decks with flashback cards snapcaster mates there's, there's a long list in vintage but this effect is so small that as you put it's generally not worth a card and an activation just to mill once so this card seems to be only useful i think if you can really stack the odds in your favor Imagine if you have Spirit of the Labyrinth in play, for example. Right. Then you turn this into a one-sided Howling Mine if you activate it on your opponent's turn. Then you're ignoring the quality of the cards completely and just instructing both players to draw a card and your opponent cannot. But again, a 1-1 body with a blue mana activation is a pretty steep cost slash small benefit for that kind of effect. Draw an extra card on turn three. Kevin, you're such a pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Steve, you know as well as anyone that the list of creatures in Vintage that have a tap to activate with an additional mana cost yeah. associated with it... It's tiny. How long is that list? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the list of creatures okay. that have tap activations is small enough. Most of those produce mana or greatly broken effects like Goblin Welder. Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the archetype. No, this is no Goblin Welder. Um, hmm. Yeah, and it's... it's um, 
they, they really designed this nicely to prevent you from really screwing your opponent with a bad draw. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in their draw step. So that's right. It's it's I mean, we we stumbled onto the idea, but you actually can't control your opponent's draws with this in any kind of qualitative fashion at all. You can control it in a specific fashion. You can keep them off of a given card. But as we've alluded to, if they have bad cards, yeah, you can't stick them with bad cards the way Fate Seal can. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so you can't be disruptive with this card unless you're combining it with some other effect, I guess is my summation, which means the abuse would come from you getting a an overwhelming advantage by having either resolution of this ability. Either you're controlling the top of your deck such that you're always getting better cards, or you get considerably more value from putting cards into the graveyard. Right, right. So this card really benefits, I guess, most best when you're bottoming both cards, when you're putting both cards in the graveyard. I think so. I think that's the easiest way to build incremental advantage. And it's also something of a dangerous thing in vintage. Right. Because every other opponent you face in the average Staff vintage caster, tournament... Staffcaster, regrowth, whatever, yeah, Yogwill. ...is going to have a way to abuse their own graveyard, yeah. Goblin welder. And you, and you definitely have no use for this against Dredge, obviously. But boy, it would be awesome if they flipped an Oath of Druids. <laughs> Yeah, that's too bad. I'm going to predict zero card, zero play then. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm predicting zero as well. Fun discussion, but I don't think this card has any future in Vintage. I think the, yeah, I think that the um, this kind of dynamic is really ripe for design. Because the, the kinds of things where you force people to weigh multiple factors and then make a decision, those are the things that people love the most. I mean, that flows explosively out of uh, factor fiction, gifts on given, things like that. A very good point. This card is very decision and skill intensive, even if the effect is somewhat minor in the long run. You're right. There's definitely opportunities for play skill and deck construction abound. I like that about it. Next up, Prophetic Flame Speaker. One red red creature human shaman, double strike trample, when Prophetic Flame Speaker deals combat damage to a player, exile the top card of your library. You may play it this turn, 1-3. Pretty interesting collection of abilities, don't you think? <laughs> this card is like um, it's like Dick Army. <laughs> <laughs> Can you, know, you elaborate like, on that? Uh, it is uh, just, from the from the title to its its keyword make abilities, it's just like the most hyper-aggressive design prophetic flame speaker and then double strike and trample it's like um <laughs> interestingly i know enough it does have plenty of aggressive elements in double strike and trample clearly but i find this to be much more of a controlling type of card exactly exactly it, which is what i was getting at the whole thing's a misnomer it's like a setup it's like you read the name and then you read its keyword mechanics and then you read its ability and look at its power and toughness and it's incongruous <laughs> Th this is as close as red is ever going to get to having ophidian ophidian yeah. yeah and i love it some people on uh, the vintage communities have immediately sprung to uh, the the mono red deck which is affectionately called the mountain winds again as a place for a creature like this and while a deck like that would love to have an aggressive source of card advantage, I really think if this card sees play, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but I really think if this card sees play, it's actually going to be in a more controlling style list. Yeah. Might be mono red, might not be, but this is this is a card built for controlling the board, at least in vintage. Is there any other card? So you mean, is there any other red card that draws cards like this? Uh, I would have to do some extensive research to properly answer that, but my instincts tell me no. There have been red cards that provide you incremental card advantage, of course, like your uh, Grim Lava Mancers, for example. Right. But nothing quite this aggressive on this kind of a body that's this efficient 
And you could potentially draw two extra cards a turn, which is amazing. Two extra cards a turn. Yeah. And obviously, again, we're skipping ahead, but if you build your deck right, those cards will include board control elements, maybe counter spells, removal, lightning bolts, of course. And, and you'll just be able to continue and propagate this creature hitting for damage and drawing a card every turn. How two extra cards, though? I can see one extra card with this. He has double strike, Steve. Oh, because double strike is dealt separate. Holy smoke. That, that wasn't clear. Yeah. And you don't, it, you don't just reveal the card either. You exile it. So if you hit them twice, you're going to exile two cards and you can play both those cards this turn such a deck would obviously be constructed with maybe a reduced amount of control elements i'm sorry a reduced amount of reactive control elements yeah right that, that's what i was going to get at is that you're really limited in terms of um you know you can't compile you can't pile up counter spells with this card right you have to play them then so sketch me out the kind of deck you have in mind that, that might use this card well, I still think such a deck would feature blue cards in general because you still would benefit from things like, say, Preordain, Ponder, Brainstorm. You inevitably end up playing with Force of Will, your Ancestral, your Time Walk. But in terms of being red, red mana, you're going to be tempted to go into uh, other red cards. And so I'm looking at the top hits like Lightning Bolt, uh, like your Ancient Grudge, for example, but also, I think you're going to have a lot of thematic overlap with Young Pyromancer. Yeah. Playing multiple spells per turn, and just for incremental board control value, which is how I like actually enjoyed building Pyromancer decks. So I think you could be looking at a Pyromancer shell, and you might end up playing Gush. Can you play the alternative casting cost with this? Yes, you can. You may play it this turn. So you can alternate mana cost anything you reveal in Exile. Is there a way to, to break this like it, with like a hatred-type effect? Uh, what do you mean by break, though? I'm talking damage or card advantage? Like like using like a Yawgmoth's Bargain with this card, like drawing like a ton of cards in one turn. Well, the tr- draw is triggered off of combat damage. and Oh, that's right. So you would, you'd only get to... Yeah. Right. Unless you got multiple combat steps, which is certainly possible to do in Vintage, but probably thematically weak. Right. Yeah. Now you're going to you're going to need to address your opponent's creatures in such a deck, which is why lightning bolt is obvious. But you'll probably want more than that. Yeah. I apologize to our listeners. This is the kind of card I would have analyzed had I written a set review. This is my first time <laughs> seeing this. So. Uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor is still pretty good with this card, given that Unsummon yeah. and Brainstorm are synergistic with it. So I really feel like you can just look at a recent modern Young Pyromancer Gush list and start from there, you know, and tweak accordingly. Fewer counter spells, as you put it, maybe a little more board control, higher number of lightning bolts, that kind of thing. So you're thinking like a blue-red deck. Almost, cer- almost certainly blue-red, possibly Grixis, possibly Rug. And also you could go in an aggro control direction too. There's, I, I'm thinking more like a controlish build, but you could just put this into Rug too as a starting point because obviously the themes of creature aggressive creature damage combined with incremental card advantage overlap there. Right. Unfortunately, this creature is not really disruptive in any major way in Vintage. It does a very good job at controlling the ground for many of the smaller creatures. Your Dark Confidant pales in comparison to this and doesn't even (laughs) need to apply in combat. And that's one of the reasons why they gave it Trample, by the way. So that if I attack with this and you block with Dark Confidant, the first strike damage kills your Dark Confidant, the second damage hits you, and I still reveal the one card. So it's really hard to fight this creature literally and figuratively in Vintage with all the small creatures that come into play. Unfortunately, it doesn't pair up very well against lodestone golem sadly yeah but 
that's a known issue and, and any of your other cards or creatures in, that, in such a deck would be set up to address that situation. Yeah, and if you're in deep red, you're probably going to be pretty good against shops. And Yeah, you could definitely overload against shops, <laughs> pun intended, and uh, and shore up that matchup. I think this card's pretty fun. I think three mana, really, red red is a big detractor. Red red is something that we don't do in vintage very much at all. And three mana is unfortunately not a very good sweet spot. Because of the red red, it's hard to accelerate. So yes, you could certainly play this card on turn two with a properly constructed mana base. And I bet in certain matchups and certain situations, you could really get a serious advantage. I know if I were playing a control deck of any kind in Vintage, I would not want to see this card on the other side of the table. Yeah. Now, granted, that goes for a whole bunch of cards that cost three mana in the game of Magic, but... But let's not understate the fact that this card could be drawing my opponent three cards a turn, and many of the common things that I might do to address a 1-3 creature don't really help against this one. Still vulnerable to Lightning Bolt, of course, and nearly every other modern vintage removal spell. But if you're playing a Rug-style deck, for example, you're overloading my removal already. So even though and you know the, the whole Dice to Doomblade thing applies, but it's also... Has all the standard weaknesses so, as an argument. So you're firmly of the view that this is this is vintage playable. Yes, I think this is completely vintage playable. I just would say that the deck that, that I'm brainstorming that this goes in might not be good enough. Kind of like Kiora, you could definitely construct a deck that this would be viable in. That deck might have that deck might not be good enough in the current metagame for a, for a number of reasons. Yeah, man, I. I feel like I need more time to evaluate this card and put some thought into it, but it it does seem, you know, it it's, it seems as if um, <laughs> the, the the simple fact of card advantage makes it ensures that it has potential. Um, the casting cost seems within the realm of possibility, um, and it seems like the it seems like there's just no real natural home for it. I mean, there may be some like mountain winds again type decks, junk decks. I could even see trying it in like a Del, you know, one of my blue red Delver decks, but I'm not sure what I I would really like to cut, you know, Vendillion quick for this, you know, in a deck with maximum, you know, like Bolt preordained Gush, it could be pretty good, but I would be pretty miff if I flip two counter spells, you know. Yeah. But but you you could probably get a land drop. Let's not forget that such a deck could be pretty handy at controlling its draws. If, if if preordain, brainstorm, ponder aren't enough, you could always run divining top, and you could run Jace in such a deck too. So you can pretty much load up on ways to control the top of your deck if yeah, you want. Even attacking with this just twice will probably give you a huge advantage. Yeah, and in such a deck, even a deck with ten counter spells, the odds of flipping two counters yeah. consecutively is pretty slim. I think my Delver deck has fourteen counters. Yeah, and you, and you would drop that number a little bit. Really interesting. Yeah. I think this is really, yeah, I think I it's really fascinating. I think, I like the fact that there are a number of different ways to attack this card in the format, too. You can come from a Grixis control angle. You can come from a Rug Delver angle. It could be a sideboard card that would really throw a monkey wrench into a number of matchups. Think, look at, uh, I don't know, Landstill or something. Imagine if you're playing Landstill and you brought this in against Control. That's just, that's kind of out there, but it's the, it's an example of the kind of thing where this card could have an unexpected impact as well. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. This is one of those things kind of like, not exactly like, but somewhat like Notion Thief, where we knew it had plenty of applications. Yeah. And we knew it would start slow, but that creative players would find interesting homes for it. Yeah, I think, I think my... Actually, I think it's a slightly different category of card. It's a card that is abstractly p- powerful enough to see play, but th- there doesn't isn't necessarily a natural or suitable home. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know, there's this really great thing, but is there a place in the format that can house it? Um, 
I don't think you immediately put it into any existing deck, though. With, yeah. well, with the possible exception of Rug Delver or Blue Red Delver. But he's a deck building. He's a, he's a you know, consideration for deck building, for sure. Definitely. Well, I don't think we need to belabor the point. I'm going to go first from a prediction standpoint. <sighs> I really, really think that some people are going to test this, and I think, it'd be, I think it'll be slow to be adopted. Yeah. That's really the bottom line. So... I'm going to say zero appearances, but that's not forever. That's just through our typical time frame. Yeah, I, that's totally fair. I, I was going to say zero, but I'll be contrarian. I'll say two. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll make a mental note of the fact that you were just avoiding doubling up on zero there. Uh, I would not be surprised to see a non-zero amount, but I don't, I don't really expect it. Let's move on to one Eidolon of the Great Revel, which is really a great title. Red Red, Enchantment Creature, Spirit. <laughs> Whenever a player casts a spell with converted mana cost three or less, Eidolon of the Great Revel deals two damage to that player, wow. and it is 2-2. Two, two. Good God. This is exactly Pyrostatic Pillar on a 2-2 two, two body for a double red mana cost. Now, Pyrostatic Pillar is one of those cards that saw play in Vintage a while back, much more often many years ago when it came out yeah. than it does lately. It does not see play anymore, even in sideboards. I think I found one appearance in the last year in a sideboard. This card is simultaneously much better in that it's a creature, of course, and simultaneously much worse in that it's too red for the casting cost, which is, I know we just talked a lot about uh, Prophetic Flamespeaker, but there's actually a pretty big difference between something costing red, red, one, and something costing just red, red. And also, the ways you want to use Eidolon of Great Revel, getting it out early are critical. Unfortunately, at red, red, there's... Uh, Simeon Spirit Guide notwithstanding, it's very difficult to cast this on turn one and catch people with their Moxin in hand, which is what you'd really love to do with this Pyrostatic Pillar type effect. Yeah, there, there's no red-red creature that sees play in Vintage right now, correct? No, no, and there hasn't been for a while. Yeah, I can't even think of the only thing I can think of is like Slith Firewalker and Fork at that casting cost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's been a long time since either one of those seen, has seen play. Um, I think you're right. I think this this card is um, abstractly fascinating. I'm sort of wondering now if the presence of Mana Confluence and, and uh, Cavern of Souls are changing the dynamic with respect to this this kind of creature. You know, are we going to see with, with Cavern of Souls, Mana Confluence, and City of Brass now just five-color aggro decks? You know, whatever. I, I, is that is that something the future? I think the, the answer is pretty complicated, but... The short answer is we're actually already there. I think the Mayor Mayor of Aberbrook decks from past two years are are that deck. It's just that they don't need to be really super greedy in terms of splashing five color creatures of of red red consistency and you know otherwise blue white decks. It's just not necessary to do that because there's so many great synergies in two or three colors. So I don't think that is the metric by which this card would see play. But your greater point about the great availability of mana flexibility is still accurate. It it would it's not inconceivable to build a deck that could run wasteland and still reliably play this card on turn two. Yeah. Such Shem- a mana base is conceivable. Yeah. I mean, if every single one of your lands can tap to cast this, you know, and yep. every other creature in your deck. And you might have other sneaky ways like Simeon Spirit Guide or Deathrite Shaman or Aether Vile, a number of other things, yeah. So while there isn't anything that sees play at Red Red, I don't think that's the showstopper. Yeah, I agree. I really just think that 
this effect is, I think, intention. I mean, by necessity, it's designed for broad effect across magic, right. and you're punish, punishing people for playing efficient cards. And in most other formats, especially standard, but uh, modern and legacy, uh, putting this out on turn two is still going to punish someone a great deal. But in Vintage, so much happens before this card comes into play that the punishing aspects of it become narrowed down to only certain matchups and certain decks. Parasite Pillar costs red one, right? Correct. Yeah. Much more reliable to cast on turn one in Vintage, obviously. But, and, but... And, and because of that fact, it's, it's doubly damning that Pillar doesn't see any play at all because that is a reliable turn one play. What's the viability of a spirit deck with Cavern of Souls? There are some good spirits that overlap with the humans and wizards, like Spirit of the Labyrinth and Kataki, Geist of St. Traft. There's just not as high a density of quality or powerful effects as you get with humans or wizards at the moment. And obviously none of those are red. Although, to your point, that wouldn't really be the, the issue. When was the last time Pyro Stack Killer saw play in Vintage? According to Morphling.D, you really have to go back to 2009 before you start seeing a consistent appearance of pyrostatic pillar and vintage decks when was the last time one actually appeared in a vintage top eight looks like 2012 actually i thought there were more recent appearances no so the card's not seeing any play at all lately and for good reason it is it is there's no deck in vintage for the last few years that really does damage racing well it really punishes your opponent with damage they're all transitioned. All the aggro control decks have transitioned to disruptive elements. Which is which is odd because the format is more aggro than it's ever than it's been in recent memory. Um, like you're seeing actual aggro decks emerge in this format and in contest on the ground. Whether it's Adrian Becker's creations, like the the one he, the deck he recently top aided with, which was a survival deck, or his previous iteration, or Joel Lim's deck, or the Rug decks, the Delver decks. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more and more fighting on on the ground, but but in but that's actually I don't think the operative metric in an aggro on aggro matchup. You don't want to be the one dealing more damage. You want to be the control player. That's that's one of the oldest lessons in the triumvirate of who's the beatdown decks. The only way, the only time you want to be racing on damage is when your control playing opponents can't deal with the speed of your damage. That's when you want to be playing the damage role. So you would be bringing in pyrostatic pillar against control decks in vintage yeah i don't want to bring pyrostatic pillar in against rug delver because i play turn one pillar they play turn one tarmogoyf i lose that game you want to play turn one pillar on the play against jace bob you know bob jace when they can't possibly beat you in the time that you're going to dole out the damage but that's really i think that's really the lesson of vintage is your control decks can get down to one life and then just take infinite turns or tinker out Colossus yeah. and, and still well, beat you. I, I, think, I think that, you know, it's, it's I mean, so you could be at one life with this thing in play and just win by casting Jace. So, because Jace won't trigger this. Um, yeah. I think that it's tricky, though, because I don't think that it's as simple. It, it, who's the, in the, who's down, the beat down framework, I don't think it's as simple as saying, um, you know, you have two aggro decks. You know, in, in the actual original Who's the Beat Down article, Mike Flores was talking about a, a, um, uh, red deck wins versus a, I think a junk deck or something like that. But they were both red decks. He was trying to figure out who was the beatdown in similar. In other words, the who's the beatdown framework was actually framed in terms of similar st- strategy. So between two control decks, who should be the beatdown? Between two aggro decks, who should be the control deck? Right. Um, and I don't think the answer is simple as is simple as evaluating who's faster or evaluating. Uh, you know, certainly that would incline you to think that's the aggro deck, but disruptive. But elements that are disruptive are disruptive in different matchups. Matchups. 
depending on, you know, just like graveyard disruption is very disruptive against dredge, but pretty much worthless against workshops. Similarly, artifact destruction is incredibly disruptive against workshops, but pretty much useless against work, against dredge. Mm -hmm. So, you know, disrupt being disruptive means something different in every matchup, um, depending on a number of circumstances. I mean, let me just ask you one question to try and say, you know, focus in on or hone in on, you know, how you might think about this card in a slightly different way. No, to focus in on what this card does by reframing in a slightly different way. If this card cost one and a red, what would you think of it? I think it would be better than Pyrostatic Pillar and still not appropriate for today's vintage metagame. Okay, that's what I'm getting at. So the question I'm trying to answer is, if Pyrostatic Pillar was a 2-2 creature, would it see play? I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> and I don't, I can't really evaluate this because I don't know the answer to that question. You know, Pyrostatic Pillar is clearly a powerful thing. Pyrostatic Pillar is clearly better as a creature because it gives you a win condition on top of a disruptive effect. Sure. Um, but I think you're getting at something like, would you rather have something that shuts down that kind of effect? Like a... Uh, um, something like Spirit of the Labyrinth that just prevents your opponents from drawing cards, or you actually, you know, or like a uh, a guy we're going to evaluate in a few minutes, a guy who is basically a, a rule of law that prevents them from playing multiple cards. So would you rather prevent them from playing multiple cards per turn or punish them from doing? It? Um, you know, Gadok Teague sees play for a reason. Yeah, I think that question has been demonstrably answered in Vintage. You'd rather prevent them from doing it rather than punish them. Absolutely. Damage is simply not a reliable uh, deterrent for winning games in Vintage. And I think that Time Vault is the poster child for that okay. situation. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Okay. But also Tinker and Oath and a number of other things. That that distinction has, I think, um, inclined me to predict that this is not going to see in play. And that it, and then and it's probably less playable than I may have initially suspected. Yeah. And, of course, all of this is inexorably tied to the fact that Red is uh, only playing a support role in Vintage right now. The Red Red Mana Cost is prohibitive from a structural reason in the format as well yeah. you could you could you can construct and play decks like the mountain winds again you can do it they are not performing well across the board in vintage this card may be a feature of such a deck i don't think that it pushes those decks into the upper echelons of tournament performance though and more to the point i don't predict that anyone will suddenly make a top eight with a whole bunch of mountains because of this card <laughs> yeah i would not now it could be that a, that a huh, pun intended constellation of events comes up, and this card plus prophetic flame speaker actually produces a good mono red deck or nearly mono red deck, for example. Yeah, it's hard to evaluate the the combined impacts of multiple cards on a format at once. I'm skeptical, though. I remain skeptical. Yeah, I agree with you. Also, it does not help that Toxic Deluge was in recently introduced. This is a card I would definitely put on a list of, of creatures that you might want to put in a beatdown type deck. But uh, I, I'm going to predict zero cards. Zero of this will appear in top eights in the next couple months. Yeah, I can't, I can't bring myself to even be gracious enough to predict a non-zero number for this. I really think it's not right in Vintage right now or anytime soon. But you're right, if you're the sort of player who is maybe a budget player or simply attracted to red-green beats, for example, I think this should be on your radar. Well, the reason Pyrostatic Pillar was so effective when it was is because it functioned like a Gadok T. It actually prevented the opponent from winning until they removed it. Mm -hmm. um, and, it and it made it very difficult to do that's no longer the case. I mean, you can definitely play around this thing. I'll play around Pyrostatic Pillar, and I think, you know, this suffers from all the same things as Pyrostatic Pillar. It's an enchantment, too. So. <laughs> That's true. 
that's a good point that that yeah. you get all the worst of all possible worlds in terms of targeted removal in the format right now yeah <laughs> I mean, it's not an artifact so you've got that going for you but still it dies to lightning bolts and nature's claim which covers a pretty broad spectrum of removal in from a from an archetype standpoint not to mention swords to plowshares and toxic deluge okay Let's move on to Oppressive Rays. Now, this one was brought to our attention via Twitter, and I think it's interesting, but we don't need to talk about it very long. White, Enchantment Aura, Enchant Creature, Enchanted Creature can't attack or block unless its controller plays three colorless. Activated abilities of Enchanted Creature cost three more to activate. Now, Magic Historians will immediately recognize this card as a souped-up version of Brainwash, originally from the Dark, which is also a one-white mana aura, uh, but it doesn't. Uh, but it doesn't stop the activated abilities. So I don't think this card breaks any new ground in terms of vintage. But let's do some quick comparisons. For one white mana, Swords to Plowshares is fairly obvious, and probably superior in in most ways. But I think more interestingly is our recently reviewed Chained to the Rocks, which is a one white enchantment which keeps the creature in play and uh i'm sorry it doesn't keep the creature in play but but effectively removes the creature while costing one white mana and sitting in play itself you have to have a mountain you have to have a mountain right you have to have a mountain yeah it's enchant mountain yeah and this one's enchant creature now brainwash has existed for a long time and sees no play so that's that's obvious but the addition of stopping activated abilities means this is better than brainwash against your goblin welders and your why would you ever play this over Swords to Plowshares? Well, I don't think that you would, unless you had some kind of synergy with enchantments, which there is no deck that currently really does. But if you're playing Enchantress and you didn't want to play with Mountains... That's a reason. Then yep. That's a reason. There is not currently a competitive Vintage Enchantress deck, but this would be a consideration for such a deck. Otherwise, uh, unless you have synergy of some kind with uh, a Constellation, for example, from this block which i don't see there's any vintage playable card that has constellation at least not enough to build a deck around we didn't define uh keyword mechanics in this set what's constellation constellation is basically just the enchantress mechanic given a keyword whenever you play an enchantment you draw a card or get some other effect it's worded as constellation dash then whenever you play this card or an enchantment another enchantment uh do x there's a draw a card, there's do a damage, there's lose a life, there's gain a life, all that kind of stuff. If you were trying to put together an Enchantress deck in Vintage, you you may consider this card along with some of the other Constellation cards. But by themselves, then I don't see a compelling reason to play this, just as we concluded with Chain to the Rocks. I don't see a compelling reason to play that over Swords to Plowshares. Any other thoughts on this one, Steve? Yeah, I just don't see enough separation between this. And, and I see the liabilities is so gaping that um, you can't you can't really justify running this. Okay, I think we're in agreement. I'll put us both down for zero on that one. Let's move on to Atheros, God of Passage. We haven't talked about all the gods. This one's interesting. One white, black, legendary enchantment creature god, indestructible, as they all are. As long as your devotion to white and black is less than seven, Atheros isn't a creature, as they all are. Whenever another creature you own dies, return it to your hand unless target opponent pays three life. Five, four. Three mana gods, generally speaking, have at least one passive or triggered ability. And this one is an interesting one. A creature you own dies, which means even if your opponent somehow took control of it, this still triggers for you when it dies. And the I think to use your methodology for the, the Dakra Mystic early, earlier, I think we should 
break down the constituent parts of this card and evaluate them individually and then look back at the whole. Okay. Starting first at the casting costs, which we didn't really have to worry about with the Dakra Mystic, but one white black is kind of an unprecedented mana cost in vintage. Did Vindicate see any play around when it was printed? Very little bit, but it did. It was like a Vindicate Keeper. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I remember that. There was some. Did some people have it uh, in the sideboard for Burning Wish Keeper as well? Yeah, it may have been a, a, one of yeah. yeah. Okay, so the mana cost isn't entirely unprecedented, but. Vindicate obviously doesn't see play anymore, and, and nothing like that mana cost has. At the same time, I wouldn't call it prohibitive. Any two designated colors in Vintage for three mana is certainly achievable. See our prior conversations about mana confluence. Yep. So I don't think that's a that's a showstopper. Uh, let's look at the text box. Indestructible. Yeah, no, it's not, let's devotion. look at the card type first. So it's oh, a, I'm sorry. It's a legendary card, so there's that. It's also an enchantment. And so legendary is limiting from a deck construction standpoint a little bit. Yep. Less so given the recent change to the legendary rules. The fact that it's an enchantment, as we referred to with prior creature enchantments, would be a downside in Vintage were it not for the fact that this is also indestructible. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about that. Greatly mitigates it, except for things like Revoke Existence, which are occasionally played. Well, if, if, if you have Devotion, Sufficient Devotion, it can be plowed. Yeah, that's a good point, which would almost certainly happen if it got to that point. And the Devotion thing is next then, and as we've discussed in our Theros and Born of the Gods set reviews, devotion is a sort of keyword and theme that really doesn't apply in vintage. Yeah. Devotion is very hard to achieve in vintage in anything other than a really dedicated deck with that as its goal. When there are some tricks that you can do it in vintage, there's a couple of pitch casting cost permanents in vintage that this is never going to, this is very rarely going to be a creature. Yeah. Even if you build a dedicated deck with plenty of, two pip creatures and things like that very rarely would you be able to turn this guy into a creature yeah yep so let's evaluate it then going forward from the standpoint of it just being an indestructible enchantment so assuming it's a legendary indestructible enchantment for three mana then whenever another creature you own dies return it to your hand unless someone pays three life the card that this reminds me most of is Enduring Renewal. It's very appropriate, yes. The goal of this card would ostensibly be to get into a situation where your opponent can't afford to pay life for your constant returning of creatures. So ironically, it's kind of akin to Pyrostatic Pillar in a way. Yeah. <laughs> Three life increments, you want to punish your opponent for being forced to do something. In this case, deny you creatures. Does sacrificing stuff count as a draw, as a dying? You to sacrifice a creature from play? Does it die? Yes. If you sacrifice a creature, it counts as dying. Dying just looks for the act of going from play to the graveyard. The graveyard. That's what I thought. Yeah. And I think you've hit on the primary synergy is a deck that was trying to abuse Athros would almost certainly be filled with creatures that could sacrifice themselves for some minor benefit. Yeah. I think the problem with this card is the, uh, the Punisher drawback. Yeah, exactly. And I think you would have to build almost an engine, almost, just shy of maybe actually a repeatable engine in order to have the three-life payment really become relevant in the average, the duration of an average vintage game. Because even if you played a one-drop, doesn't matter what it is, but it's a one-casting-cost creature that can sacrifice for a benefit, then you played a two-drop, a two-casting-cost creature that can also sacrifice for a benefit. Maybe you swing your opponent down to 18, 17, you know, 17, 18, 19 on turn three. You play Athros, sack both your creatures. Your opponent is going to, I think, gladly pay the sixth life for you to not get those back. And then you've got Athros and nothing else in play. Your opponent may be down as low as 10, 
but it's a game of vintage. You got your opponent to 10, and now it's their third turn. Yeah. I think that that's a losing proposition in the average vintage game. That is not a winning board state you've just constructed. <laughs> so so that I think that's why I think you have to assume that for this to be successful, you need to have some kind of engine, some kind of way that when you sacrifice one creature, two more come into play, a la Bridge from Below. Yep. That's the only way that this is really going to work. Problem is, is that those kind of engines almost entirely in, involve creating token creatures, which then don't have any synergy with Athros in any meaningful way. Then you're just down to making a bunch of token creatures, which Dredge already does far more reliably and better and more explosively than anything involving paying three mana. I think this is an interesting effect, again, for the sort of deck that doesn't currently exist in Vintage. Some kind of grindy, long game deck that benefited from the game being elongated and got your opponent to the point where they couldn't afford to pay for this trigger anymore and you suddenly got a ton of repeated card advantage. Yeah, but but that's a pretty hard thing to set up. It really is. So Steve, I think you and I are in agreement that this will be zeros yeah. across the board. I mean, it's an interesting you know mechanic. It's an interesting design idea, but the Punisher mechanic out also means that this is out of vintage. <laughs> I'm with you there. Let's move on to another one with a similar result, I think. Dictate of Crufix. This is the new Howling Mine version. One blue-blue enchantment flash at the beginning of each player's draw step. That player draws an additional card. Who suggested I, this? This came in from one of our Twitter followers. Okay. All right, all right. I think you might know the answer to this, but you might not, Steve. How long has it been since Howling Mine was played in Vintage? <laughs> since Relic Barrier was played. <laughs> This card is has a lot of upside over Howling Mine. That's undeniable. The flash means you get first draw, so you've mitigated some of that uh, symmetry. It's blue, so it pitches to force, goes well in, in existing blue-based decks. But the simple truth is that decks that want to prolong the game and draw extra cards have evolved to Landstill decks in Vintage. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, they evolved, they evolved to Ophidian decks, then to Landstill decks. Yeah, that's right. And there's also, this card's obviously competing with Jace the Mind Sculptor at three versus four mana. Yeah, this is just symmetrical. Why would you play this over an Ophidian effect? I, I don't think you would. So. Unless, yeah, you, you avoid being a creature, but in general, this kind of symmetrical permanent base draw has gone by the wayside in Vintage, and I don't think this card's going to bring it back. Yeah, even if this costs blue and a one, I don't see how this would see play in Vintage. So you play on your opponent's end step, you untap, you draw two cards, you know, so you've essentially replaced itself, then your opponent gets two cards, and you're back at the same position. Mm -hmm. So I think, j just for the sake of demonstration, let's take that to the logical conclusion. If this card was free, if it costs zero mana, yeah. would you same. play it? Nope. I don't think so. I think, you, I think you have to bend over backwards too hard to break the symmetry of a card like this when there are so many other non-symmetrical options that are yeah. better, like Jason and Stand Still. I mean, don't get me wrong, this is better than Howling Mine, yep. but it still suffers the same ultimate long-term problem. Yep. All right, so zeros for Dictative Crew Fix. Let's talk about one Spite of Mogus. <laughs> I don't know if it's Mogus or Mogus. I haven't looked up the issue. Red. Do sorcery. they actually have, they have uh, pronunciation guides now? I believe so. I'd have to look it up, but I mean, they have style guides for everything else, so I believe <laughs> Where it's... Where are you looking it. up? I just, you said I have to look up the... Look up the <laughs> Wizards publishes lots of background information about the characters and the cards. I, mean, okay. I don't read it all, gotcha, just some gotcha. of it. Okay, this is a sorcery. 
Spite of Mogus deals damage to target creature equal to the number of instant and sorcery cards in your graveyard. Scry one. We like scrying. I do. And we like creature removal that costs one mana. Yeah. And we're almost always going to have instants and sorceries in our graveyard. Except for those critical turns early in the game. This card really shines nicely in something like my, my blue-red Delver deck, where sure. you have a really dense number of instants and, and card acceleration and cantrips like preordains. Um, as far as it be, start to be really interested in something like 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 that or um, a legacy deck of a similar notion. Obviously, the big constraint here is that it cannot hit a Planeswalker, and that's the sucky part about this, for Vintage at least. Uh, I think that's one of the constraints, but I think the big one is, is this does not kill turn one anything. Yeah, that's right. Can't kill a turn one Bob. Well, you could, if you had Gitaxian Probe. Yeah, your opponent goes Fetch Land, Mox, Dark Confidant. <laughs> if it's a Gitaxian Probe, you could, but... Yeah. Or, or Mental Misstep, or Force them, but yeah. Yeah. No, I'm being glib. It's not certain. Yeah, there you go. It does not reliably do more than one damage in the early turns, and that's one of the key reasons for playing Lightning Bolt today, is that with a Lightning Bolt, a Land, and a Mox, you can kill that turn one Lodestone Golem, or you can, you can threaten, possibly kill that turn one Jace. It's interesting to note that Lightning Bolt is like now at the peak of its... You know, these cards cycle in and out of formats. Lightning Bolt is once again back at the peak of its popularity and vintage, and a big reason for that is, is undoubtedly Planeswalkers. But there are other reasons besides. Um, and But despite Lightning Bolt's return to format preeminence, it's notable that virtually none of the other burn spells have joined it. <laughs> it's not like... I mean, back in the day, you had Lightning Bolt pair with Chain Lightning. Chain Lightning doesn't see any play in vintage. The only other burn spell that I can think of that sees a moderate amount of play, even a t- marginal amount of play, rather, is Fire Ice, and simply because that has the distinction of being able to be merchant scrolled for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's not hard to see why. Lightning Bolt is simply the excellent confluence of everything you want to be in Vintage. The one mana, the instant speed, and the three damage. And nothing else can match that. Everything else pales compared to that or needs to have a lot of additional utility like Fire Ice. Yeah, this is this is not going to see any Vintage play. Yeah. Now, we do like the Scry. Don't get me wrong. Right. Pull it, if, if this reliably did three damage, drawing it off the top in the mid-game to Scry would be yeah. a really nice addition to a Vintage control deck. Yes. But the fact that you can't reliably kill that turn one Dark Confidant or Lordstone Golem means you just you just can't afford to take that chance in Vintage. That's right. Next, Eidolon of Rhetoric. Two white enchantment creature spirit. Each player can't cast more than one spell each turn. One four. Oh, one four is kind of a heck of a body. That's a thing. So this is rule of law with a one four body. Rule of law? This is Arcane Laboratory. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're right about that. I think this is covered by many of the topics we discussed already, vis-a-vis aggressive creatures, disruptive elements. R- Rule of Law slash Arcane Lab have not seen play in Vintage for a while for a couple of reasons. One is the three mana, which has become increasingly unreliable if you want to disrupt a combo deck, which is what this Rule of Law slash Arcane Lab effect is trying to do in general. But also because of the printing of Ether Sworn Canonist, mm-hmm. which accomplishes most of the goals of such a limiting type card for one less mana and a more aggressive body. How much play does Ether Sworn Canonist see in, see in recent vintage? Uh, very little of late. The recent top eight results for Ether Sworn Canonist, uh, there haven't even been any in the last year. Wow. The most last recent year. one is 2012. Wow. Yeah. And I think that's due to a number of effects. I think it's due to Thalia, who accomplishes this effect in a more circumspect and broadly powerful way. I think it's due to Flusterstorm, which was just 
a much more efficient and broadly accepted tool for attacking Storm. I think it's due to Mental Misstep, which the creatures that want Grizzly Bears get to play to slow the Storm decks while playing different other Grizzly Bears. I think it's due to Gadok Teague. Just a number of effects have conspired such that three mana to slow your opponent down need not apply in Vintage anymore. And even Aether Sword Canonist has just been eclipsed in terms of utility. Right. That's really, it's really surprising to me, actually, um, on, on some level, because, um, you know, the ability to prevent your opponent from playing spells is, is pretty amazing. Fact. <laughs> um, and I, I suspect that a big reason for the decline of Canonist is because of the, the sort of broadside exception for artifacts makes it that, that has become increasingly a liability especially oh, think about something like assembling time vault combo that's a good point and i not think another factor is oath of druids because yeah. now your even your storm-based combo decks can kill you with one spell if need be i would probably play this over rule of law I think, yeah, I think in general, you and I are both in favor of creature versions of old enchantments being superior in general. And in something like Rule of Law, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand why. You're you're trying to slow the game down, and anything that contributes to how fast you can kill them once you've reached that point, right. it just makes it superior. So even though this only has one power, yeah. that might translate into one turn faster clock as you're trying to assemble your beatdown. Do you think this is better than Aethersworn Canvas or worse? Well, it's I th- I think it's pretty clearly worse. Okay. I just the difference between two and three mana is the answer to that question in my eyes. Yeah, yeah, that's the primary feature. I mean, obviously, having one less power is non-trivial as well. There's plenty of other yeah, contributing factors, and also the fact that Aether and Sworn Canonist has a more relevant uh, creature type. What if this costs two mana, though? Which one would you like better? At, at two mana, I would like this better, because I think this is a more authoritative effect. Yeah, the other thing is that yeah, although Aether Sworn Canonist is two power, it's an artifact. So <laughs> yes. It can be bounced or destroyed with a Hercules Recall. Um, huh. I think you're probably right. I think that means this card's not going to see any play. But I feel more strongly about this card than some of the other cards that we we mentioned that this is potentially vintage playable at some point. Um, it's a card I would set aside and, and consider some someday playing. Um, yeah, it might come about through other printings that all the the reasons we just cited for Ether Sworn Canonists uh, go by the wayside. It might be that there's a a purely combo, I'm sorry, a purely artifact-based combo deck, for example, which would render the Canonist moot, uh, would render Flusterstorm moot, would render Mental Misstep perhaps moot. You know, maybe something comes about that circumvents all of those other factors, and you have to fall back on just stopping your opponent from playing spells. Yeah, um, I see what you're saying. So, like, this could, be, this could be an answer to some kinds of decks. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to construct a like, scenario that would, uh, uh, in which Thalia wouldn't still be superior, though. Like, like an affinity deck. Be. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example. Affinity is a, uh, in the vein of what I'm thinking of. I find that highly unlikely, but you can't predict, you know, the progression of magic mechanics too far down the line. Hmm. So I think we're both in the zeros for this, right? Yeah. All right, let's talk about another fun one. King Makar, the Gold Cursed. Two black black, legendary creature dash human. He is inspired when King Makar, sorry, whenever King Makar, the Gold Cursed, becomes untapped, you may exile target creature. If you do, put a colorless artifact token named gold onto the battlefield. It has sacrificed this artifact as one man of any color to your mana pool. Two, three. Exiling creatures, even if it's four mana and inspired 
Uh, exiling creatures is still pretty handy in Vintage without any other targeting requirements or limitations. Yeah, let's break this card down to its constituent components. So let's let's go ahead and start with the casting cost. Two black black. Steve, I'm drawing a blank on an example of a recent playable vintage card at that mana cost. I can't get Juzam Jin out of my head. <laughs> well, the card I was thinking of was Faceless Butcher, so it's not better. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty rare casting cost, but all things considered, it's still reasonable compared to Jace the Mind Sculptor, for example. Sure, sure. So mana cost is unusual, but not oh, you know, not a limiting factor too not much. Feasible, yeah. Yeah. Legendary creature human, so we can cast this off of Cavern of Souls in a deck that's otherwise riddled with humans, which you might. Now, we covered the inspired keyword mechanic pretty thoroughly when we reviewed Theros, and I think you and I were generally of the agreement that it's just simply not reliable enough in Vintage. So why don't you recap our analysis? The essence of our analysis was, I believe, that you have to have it survive in play for a turn, and then you have to also attack and survive one more through the combat in order to actually get back to the next untap step. Yeah, so it adds time, which is precious in Vintage, and it also interacts poorly with other with the preponderance of creatures in the format. Most of the inspired creatures that we reviewed in Theros were pretty small, thereby meaning that attacking with them and then untapping them was not reliable. They would frequently die in combat. And unfortunately, even at four mana, King Makar demonstrates that at a 2-3 body. Right. Now, he definitely gets past your Dark Confidants and your Snapcaster Mages, but he doesn't get past Delver, Goyf, Lodestone... Right, so first he has to he has to get through. If he gets through, you exile an opponent's creature, and you get a you get uh, mana out of the deal, which is not true. Uh, you you get a lotus petal, yeah, which has its use. You get a what? A lotus petal. A lotus petal, yes. Yeah. You get, you get a lotus petal. Um, I think to the point we've just made, though, it really bears pointing out that the notion of attacking through your opponent's creatures with a two-three and untapping, then exiling creatures, are those two concepts are at odds with each other. If your opponent has creatures you want to exile, right. they're going to block yeah. with those creatures rather than let this guy get through. There's a logical inconsistency there. <laughs> yeah. So I just think that even if even at maximal efficacy, this card is probably not very useful. Of course, we're assuming that the way that we're tapping it is by attacking, but that is the most natural way. You oh, have yes. Some, you'd have to have the, some other outside uh, mechanic that will allow you to tap it. Otherwise, like a little... Right. Springleaf uh, from the simplest example. But that was another part of the conclusion we released when we first reviewed Inspired, was that there are simply not enough reliably well, efficient or useful effects that can tap creatures to, to speed up their Inspired triggers. There's also a possibility of getting a sort of Dorvan Warriors effect uh, that makes this card unblockable. It could allow you to do the exiling in that way. Definitely, definitely. But but either of those are just you attacking on things to solve a problem you really shouldn't have in the first place. Yeah, that's right. You're adding on additional cards, which could just be used to sorts the plowshares, the offending creatures, and have very little other utility. Springleaf Drum is, I think, the best example, though. It is it is probably the most efficient <laughs> and the most utility-generating card that also synergizes with Inspired, and it's still just not good enough for vintage yeah could you could like try and in addition to that kind of thing you could try and give him haste so he can work immediately yeah um, you know and then and then hopefully by the time he's on tap you can exile something but that's uh that would be pretty silly circumstances <laughs> 
Yeah. I think this card is, I really enjoy the occasional top-down design. And the Midas design here, I think, is pretty well implemented. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't result in anything that's actually synergistic, or it doesn't fill any holes in any vintage deck. And a four-mana reliable way to remove creatures kind of stopped being a thing in vintage with the Abyss. Yeah, yeah, I agree. This card is not vintage playable, um, so there you have it. Knock yourself out in EDH, though. Next up, Pull from the Deep. Two, blue, blue, sorcery, return up to one target instant card and up to one target sorcery card from your graveyard to your hand, exile pull from the deep. So we got a two for one regrowth effect for two card types that are pretty omnipresent in vintage blue decks. Isn't this just worse than restock? Isn't this just worse than restock? Doesn't restock cost three green, green? It does. You're right. Okay. All right. I thought it caught the same casting cost except being green, right? So we're getting an ostensible draw effect for four mana, but in theory, the two cards we're getting are of high quality, very high quality. In your average vintage control deck today, you're looking at a, a Force of Will and a Thought Seize, or if you're lucky, a Time Walk and an Ancestral. This, this card, I mean, there are so many problems with this card. Obviously, the casting cost is at the upper edge of blue playability in terms of mm-hmm. the card you actually hard cast. Um, the other thing is that even though you generate card advantage, it doesn't generate nearly as card, card advantage as like a Jace or as much mm-hmm. facility. Then there's also the problem that what if you just have instants in your graveyard or just have sorcery? Then you're, mm-hmm. not, you're only going to get one card. Um, you know, in that case... In that case, it's just a worse relearn. One thing that people might not appreciate about vintage deck construction is while there are lots of spells that get played in vintage, even a vintage Grixis control deck doesn't actually have that many sorceries in That's it by right. default. I mean, you could easily, you could easily, you know, have this card and try and cast it, and your graveyard could be like an artifact, a land, a creature, an yeah. instant, and a planeswalker before it has a sorcery. <laughs> now, that's not to say that you couldn't add sorceries to a Grixis list. You, yeah. you can shoehorn in extra thought season and preordains if you want, but the typical list these days actually doesn't have a real uniform distribution of those two card types. Yeah, yeah. So this suffers from comparison with Jace and with Gifts and with Fact. And with Relearn. And with Relearn, <laughs> yeah. And with Regrowth, yes. if, we're, if we're being fair. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think it's compelling enough to reliably regrowth two cards for twice the mana. So, I mean, you could think, you could imagine a number of ways to design tweak this to try and improve its quality. You could say, you know, return target instant two, or, you know, like an instant and or sorcery and another instant and or sorcery. Yeah, you true. Know, that, that would be an improvement. It still wouldn't be quite playable. Um, you know, This card does interact favorably with gifts on given and factor fiction, though. Yeah, even if you return three cards from your graveyard to your hand, I'm not sure it would be good enough. Yeah. Instant, instant, instant sorcery. Because if four, if four casting costs, it, you should get the three cards back. It, it, <laughs> it two narrow card types, right? I mean, because you think about it, how often are you actually going to have the three instants and or sorceries, right? Yeah. So. And there's another subtle aspect, too, and that is regrowing cards in Vintage is actually really hit or miss in terms of its utility. Yes, if you get Ancestral and Time Walk back, that's awesome. Yeah. But there's yeah. so many utility cards in Vintage. There's your Fluster Storms and your Lightning Bolts. That's right. You frequently, even if you could get them back, you don't actually want another one of those in that game. Well, there's so much. There's also so much recursion right now in the format with Snapcaster Mage, etc. Mm-hmm. That there's a really there's a really low need for this kind of effect because yeah. there's already such an abundance. That's a good. There's point. not much demand for this kind of thing. I should have listed Snapcaster earlier and the things that this suffers from comparison with. Yep. All right. I don't think we need to go too much further here. I'm I'm with zero. Just go to the Disciple of Deceit. Yeah. Disciple of Deceit is blue-black. Creature, human, rogue. 
with inspired. Whenever Disciple of Deceit becomes untapped, you may discard a non-land card. If you do, search your library for a card with the same converted mana cost as that card. Reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. One, three. So let's just go through through that real quick. So uh, if you attack with this, if you cast this creature, resolve it. It survives for a turn. You attack with it. Then you go to your next turn and untap it. During your untapped step, you may discard <laughs> a card in your hand. Mm-hmm. And then you may search your library for a card with the same casting cost. So, for example, if you have a mental misstep in your hand, you could discard it and find Ancestral Recall. Or if yep. you have a two-casting cost creature like a Dark Confidant, you could find Demonic Tutor or Time Lock. Mm-hmm. Or... You know, if you have a um, Trigon Predator, you could discard it and find Yogg Muscle or Tinker. Right. Yep. So, you know, you could, assuming you had another two casting cost card, just go get Time Walk and then do the exact same thing if you have another two casting card, get Snapcaster Mage, and then use this one more time. Um, let's, let's start with the Diligence, because I don't want to get overly sure. to, to the conclusion. Blue-Black is... Is definitely a playable casting cost in Vintage. Yep. I'm drawing a blank on a recent example, though, at that exact casting cost. Limduel's Vault. Oh, Baleful Strix. Baleful Strix. Yeah. <laughs> Baleful Strix definitely demonstrates the playability of that mana cost. Creature Human Rogue means you've got some potential synergy with Cavern of Souls and other humans. A Dark Confidant, for example. Stabcaster Mage. Definitely some overlap there. The 1-3 body is a good body yep. in Vintage for 2 mana for two because mana. it c- compares uh, favorably with the other 2 mana creatures in the format, most of them, except for Tarmogoyf. Speaking mechanically for Inspired, this particular Inspired ability, the tutoring it offers in Vintage is very powerful very, and very flexible. Yeah. So, that's, so we've got high, high upside, probably the highest upside of an Inspired creature that we've yes. seen so far. Yes. Is that enough to overcome the general weakness of the Inspired mechanic? That's really the fundamental question here. Yeah. Um, and, and and I don't want to overstate it. Steve, you lifted great examples when you when we first started. I don't think you I don't think it's hyperbole to say that you could expect to win the game if you activate this ability. Yeah, I think that's right. Given given the great confluence of one, two, and three mana spells in the format. Yeah. Like I just sort of went through. I just Yeah. Yeah, you untap with a dark confidant in your hand, you should expect to take two more turns. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And then get a different tutor at the end of that chain. And if you can't win the game from doing that, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> and I think and I think it'll be almost trivially easy to assemble a key vault once you get the first activation of this card. Mm-hmm. And that's just with that's just with a, a cursory glance at the, on a normal Grixis control type list. Uh, a more tuned list would obviously have some tutor chains in it, which I probably haven't even considered and would be very broken. But that's all predicated on the notion of play this on two, attack on three, untap on four, and win the game. Yeah. And I think at the basest level, I think that isn't actually good enough in Vintage. Well, I like the fact that, again, he doesn't actually have to, this this creature doesn't actually have to deal damage. It just has to survive the attack. Sure. Um, That's that's in its favor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, this isn't going to survive combat with a... uh, uh, with a goif, I mean, with a, uh, a uh, golem, but it could survive combat with a goif or, you know, a pyromancer or, you know, an unflipped delver, whatever the case may be. It's going to survive a lot of yeah. a lot of combat, actually, because it's got one three. The fact that it comes down on turn one or two, probably turn two, yeah. helps that fact. Like, King Makar is a two three, better body than this, but at four mana is much less likely to survive that first attack. Yeah. This even survives Trigon Predator, Death Rite, Early Goif. I mean, Moat. 
most of the early creatures that aren't workshop creatures yeah. lives through. I think this card really does you know, sort of bring into focus whether they're, whether it's worth playing with an outside effect that can tap a creature. Yeah, I, I really do think so. you're right. Uh, with how good this inspired effect is, then accelerating it by a turn could... I mean, this really puts the maximum tension on that. Is Springleaf Drum good enough if next turn you're going to untap and win the game? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're being we're being glib about it, but right. th- this is I think I think this is almost that reliably good. The effect, I mean, right? It's kind of like Tezzeret. Yeah. Not as linear, mind you. You still need a collection of cards, but the collection of cards you need is really loose. Yeah. Uh, almost any random sampling of two or three cards from this deck list is probably good enough. Mm-hmm. And you would tweak your deck list accordingly. We, ha- we Steve, we could go through a whole bunch of diligence talking about what cards get what cards, but you already listed the key ones. Any two-mana card gets DT or Time Walk. Any one-mana card gets Ancestral or Vamp or key, or, or Voltaic Key. And any two-mana card gets Time Vault, of course. Yeah. Any three-mana card gets Tinker or Yawgmoth's Will. So you untap with this the first time, and you have a, a, a second Disciple of Deceit in your hand, for example. And then you have some random three, I don't know, Thirst for Knowledge. Just those two cards. Yep. You probably win the game with just those two cards. Because you go get Time Walk with the first Disciple, and you yep. cast it. Then the next turn, you, oh, you've drawn a card, too. You get Yawgmoth's so, Will. Then the next turn, you get Yawgmoth's Will, cast it and whatever, and your Time Walk again. I mean, you've drawn another card since then, plus whatever you draw from the Yawgmoth's Will. I just, on average, I just don't know how you lose games like that. You can also do things like discard a Mox... And then um, get black lotus. That's right. When we uh, reviewed inspired last last time, we there was a creature that can tap or un- it was like a blue creature that can tap or untap creatures. Is that right? Yeah, you're, Steve, you're talking about freed from the real, which is a three mana aura that has blue tap, blue untap. So you can yeah. just manipulate an inspired creature that way. It's one that we didn't pick up on when we were doing our first analysis. I'm still of the opinion that. As abusive as that sounds, that's probably not worth it to spend two weak cards just to tutor that way. Yeah, I mean, it is a two-card combo that likely wins the game, but... There are plenty of those. (laughs) Yeah, there are plenty of those. So, you know, that, that brings up a point, though, and I was about to say it earlier, but we went off on another tangent. One of the things I think that's deceptively interesting about this particular card is that you can integrate it into an otherwise into a deck that otherwise has no interactions with it. Meaning you don't need this card to win in such a deck. Yeah, yeah. You can just build but, it as an additional tactic. And- yeah, and so I would say that this card wouldn't necessarily be the primary tactic in such a deck, but it just it just ends games if it if it connects. Yeah. Which is which is a useful effect in general. Now this creature is not great otherwise. Two mana for a one three is pretty weak in in the grand scheme of things if it's vanilla but there's something to be said for the fact that it does hold off uh, a couple of attacks from a dark confidant going the other direction Uh, it can slow your opponent down maybe they spend a lightning bolt on it but that's the lightning bolt that they didn't spend on the jace that you play the next turn well so even if it doesn't connect it still has value it's still a threat it's kind of like playing a turn one voltaic key in vintage your opponent then has to respect additional threats yeah, I mean, I just think that there's a, frankly, there's an overabundance of, of really good creatures right now. <laughs> you know, if this was like three or four years ago, this card would be a lot more interesting. But you have Snapcaster Mage on top of Dark Confidant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have cards like Vendelian Click that also compete at, at that level. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's, and there, there are many more. Um, so it's, it's really hard to make the case. And the opportunity cost of this lot is, is, is quite high. And I don't want to sort of underestimate the, 
casting cost difficulties either. Um, you know, it's not a turn one play. It's not a reliable turn one play the way Bob is. Yeah. yeah. But that having been said, you almost certainly would play this in a deck with Dark Confidant. So there's that aspect. Let me put it to you, and let me take that analysis you just made and turn it around on you, though. You're playing, uh, let's say, Rug Delver. You're playing Rug Delver, which you've played recently, against a Grixis Control deck. I, I play Blue Red. I play Blue Red Delver. But yep. Oh, right. So you're playing Blue Red Delver against a Grixis Control deck. That's a matchup you like. You know, you're 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 comfortable in that okay. matchup. Um, they play Bob on turn one, which they frequently do, and and maybe you remove it, and maybe you don't. It's a judgment call. But what I'm getting at is, you get to turn three or four. They've they've answered some of your threats. You've answered some of theirs. Would you rather them play this card or a Vendillion click against you in that mid game setting? That's an interesting point. Obviously, this is probably gonna be more devastating. Um, now, all things being equal, there's plenty of answers for yeah. this. You've got your own creatures. You've got Goyf. It's not a game ending against Rug by any stretch. But that's the kind of thing I'm getting at is that this is ostensibly weaker on the face, but more potent in the long run once once you've traded threats with someone and you're you're playing off the top. If if I played this and you played a dark confidant, would you block this creature if I attacked you with it? Uh hold on a sec. <laughs> I set that up again because I didn't quite understand my motivation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I played this creature and you play a Dark Confidant. Yes. And I go to attack you with this creature. Would you block with your Dark Confidant trade? Oh, sorry, never mind. Super. It's a 1-3. Yeah, cut oh, it off. Oh, I, I see. You were setting up it as though it were a trade. Yeah. Well, switch, switch that analogy, though, to I have a Lightning Bolt. Okay. I mean, you play this... I'm on the play, let's say. I go land go, you go land go. I play my second land and I have a Lightning Bolt in my hand now, assuming I don't have a Mana Drain. You play this on two. Do I Lightning Bolt it? Assuming I'm not planning to win the game next turn, most to. definitely I have to. Yeah, you've got you've got to. I have to respect it as a threat. Yeah. The analysis might get a little more tricky if you ask me. Let's say let's say I have double Bob. Yeah. No, that's not a very good analysis because I still only trade you one for one because this only has one power. Hmm. Yeah. No, I think um, you know this card is a respectable threat. I think I think that's really the bottom line. It's a respectable threat. It's interesting how it, it probably does pretty well in decks that have lots of creatures because those creatures are going to be good things to, to pitch with it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. you got a bunch of uh, Dark Confidants and uh, Snapcaster Mages. They all become Time Walk. Oh, and it synergizes with Snapcaster Mage and Dark Confidant too. I think that shouldn't be understated. Never mind the human aspect of all those creatures, but the simple fact is, is that if this creature reliably becomes additional turns, then that's amazing with Dark Confidant, of course. And any spell that's really good that you get, because Time Walk and Ancestral are going to be top of the list. Yeah. Both of those are really good with Snapcaster Mages. So if you build your deck right, you're going to double up on the result of this thing. I, I felt really strongly that Notion Thief was, was vintage playable and that it would see play. I think I predicted that mm -hmm. on zero number. I, I feel less strongly about this card. Interesting. So, you know, I don't, I don't think this is going to be a thing that people really overlook. I think it could see play, but I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think it's guaranteed to by any stretch of imagination. And I'm not even convinced that it is vintage playable, even though I think it could see play. That may seem like a contradiction, but... <laughs> that's, that's funny. Uh, let's talk about the situation where this card is terrible then as opposed to something like Dark Confidant, because with Bob, you put it out there on turn one, and it doesn't have to do anything else other than sit there, whereas this card has to basically attack. Within reason, it has to attack in order to have its effect. So you play this on turn one, your opponent 
plays Tarmogoyf. Let's say that Goyf is already a 2-3 because of Fetchland and Force of Will or something. I don't know. But then this card kind of sits there and does nothing. You can't attack into the Goyf. You're just gonna you're just gonna uh, bump. And assuming they play one more spell, then it's going to eat this. But then again, is that really that bad? Because all things being equal, they also can't really attack you with Goyf. No, because they need to, they need to have this back block. That situation might sound a little artificial to our listeners, but I don't think it's unreasonable. In a, in a, in a back-and-forth game, while this card would be inferior to Tarmogoyf and also doesn't provide the immediate card advantage of a Dark Confidant, it still has to be respected. It still has an impact. No, it, uh, it does. Um, so you think this is going to see play in Vintage? What's your prediction? <sighs> Boy, I can't escape the fact that the upside on this is so high. And all the other aspects don't, they don't damn it. You know, there's no one part of this card that says this just won't be useful because it's going to be dead in these situations. It's it's dead in, in many of the same situations that a Dark Confidant is dead in. Yep. You know, difficult to cast or doesn't impact the board enough. And it has so many other upsides that are even bigger than Dark Confidant's upsides. So what is your prediction? I gotta go non-zero. Someone is gonna play this. You're, gonna go, you're going zero? No, I'm non-zero. It's just a matter of I don't think many people will. So I'm gonna say two. I'm gonna say zero. That's fair. I've been wrong before. That brings us to the end of our card evaluation for Journey into Nyx. Steve, what do you think about this set as a whole, or maybe this block as a whole now? Well, you know, a lot of people have criticized the set from a vintage perspective, and it's easy to do so. I mean, the keyword mechanics are, are clearly not viable in vintage. Um, the, um, the the power level of the set in many respects seems diminished compared to other sets. I think there is much to credit in Journey of Nyx. Um, you know, there are at least a number of cards that are considerations for Vintage. Some that are going to be clearly playable. Um, others that push push at the boundaries that are, could be potential role players or at least a deck construction considerations. My general observation is that I was really hoping to see some more of that. You know, that that design balance in terms of finding cards that. Um, are sometimes better and sometimes worse than existing cards. And while there is some of that here, it's largely because they've taken an old card and given it legs, you know, like <laughs> an enchantment or, you know, like Pyrostack Pillar or Rule of Law, rather than actually, um, you know, creating something that is situationally superior and situationally inferior to existing cards. And I think that's kind of where Mana Confluence fails, because it's not a card that is um, sometimes better and sometimes worse than City of Brass. It's pretty much always better than City of Brass. Um, but that said, I think there are a lot of interesting ideas in the set. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm always for, you know, giving, giving old enchantment legs. And I'm really interested by the card like Dakra Mystic, which I think has a lot of a lot of great potential going forward. So, um, and, and, and frankly, I think Prophetic Flamethrower is really fascinating. So uh, I'm really hoping that you know, sometimes you design cards and it's hard. the reason it's so difficult to predict how they'll do is because they open up new vistas of opportunity and possibility. And Flamespeaker is the kind of card that could do that that sort of thing. I mean, it's not a very unique uh, strategic card, but it's a, a baseline effect, foundational effect of generating card advantage, which you know is always something that vintage players are looking for. So that kind of value is, is definitely notable. Um, 
so I think uh, I think that this set ends on a high note, um, and I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what this summer brings. Yeah, I like the fact that in several cases during our review, we had the sentiment of this card isn't isn't right right now, yeah. but it could be, which is I think that's a marker of good design potential. Yeah, we we orient our predictions around what we'll see play, but mm-hmm. not whether it is you know satisfies the you know uh, the basic conditions for playability, which is a different a different thing. Yeah, another rubric for uh, set reviews might include that, and it's perfectly valid. Well, we're done with Journey into Nyx, but fear not, loyal listener, because we're not done evaluating cards today. (laughs) We have one card from Conspiracy that simply must be addressed in the vintage context, (laughs) and he is Dak Faden. One blue-red Planeswalker Dak, (laughs) plus one target player draws two cards, then discards two cards, minus two gain control of target artifact, minus six You get an emblem with, whenever you cast a spell that targets one or more permanents, gain control of those permanents, starting loyalty of three. (laughs) Steve, not only do we evaluate pretty much every blue planeswalker that comes across our browser, we've been needing and wanting this second ability or something like it for a long time. How many times have we evaluated, especially red planeswalkers, and said, if only the second ability did something about artifacts. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Uh, I, I, I find myself wondering if someone in the R&D labs hasn't heard our show a few times and said, can we just get a Planeswalker that does something about artifacts, artifacts. please? Yeah. Our, our, our prayers have been answered, Kevin. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm so excited about this card. I'm, I'm hoping someday in the far future we call this DAC 1. You know? Mm. you know, the first DAC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, you know that will uh, pretend uh, some, <laughs> some some great Dak Faden's variants in the future uh, um, that that we've seen with Jace. But it, it's 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 hard to almost know where to begin here. Um, I think the that that second uh, ability is where we should begin, and that's Steel Artifact, which it can do right off the bat. Um, you know, Steel Artifact is obviously has not seen play in a while, but some Steel Artifact variants have. So, um, uh, Kevin. Isn't there like a, a card called like Domineer or something that's cost three mana that steals an artifact? There is a card called Domineer that costs three mana. It costs uh, one blue blue, in fact, and it is enchant artifact creature. So it's control mana for, I'm yeah. oh, sorry, control magic for artifact creatures. That explains probably why that hasn't seen seen much play. But yeah. Just removed. But the capacity to um, to recur- iteratively steal is really tremendously alluring. Um, mm-hmm. So so the sequence. So just just in terms of you know while there might not be any card in vintage that currently sees play that steals steals artifacts, I think it's of sufficiently high value, especially when compared with other effects on this card and the capacity to do it more than once. That I think I think that may, that rises it over the threshold for playability. So why don't we look at the the first ability then? The first ability is pretty clearly just uh, faithless looting. Yeah, Yeah. careful study. And it's plus one, so his starting loyalty of three and the omnipresence of lightning bolt in the format 
suggests that if it's not immediately necessary or relevant to steal an artifact, it's going to be very common for Dak to cast Faithless Looting, for lack of a better term, the turn he comes into play. Right. In a format like Vintage, we've touched on this looting effect already in today's show, in fact. It's possible to build a deck that really benefits from this. But I think more to the point, given the the average, but also the variance in power in Vintage decks, looting is a generally more useful effect than in other formats. You have Your decks frequently have a constellation of super powerful cards, the restricted yeah. cards you really want to draw as well as highly tuned uh, specific answers to sp- certain threats like your Hercules Recall, your Lightning Bolt, etc. that you want to draw when you need them and want to get rid of when you don't. Plus a couple of key role players that you always want to discard, like your Blightsteel Colossus. I'm not, point- I'm not trying to make the point that looting is card advantage, yeah. but that card selection is very powerful in Vintage, possibly more powerful than in any other format. Well, you know, it's interesting. Both of these effects are not necessarily cards, you know, effects that you would play by themselves, but because they can be iterative and because they can be combined in this way, mm-hmm. I think it actually makes them far more valuable than they otherwise would be. Um, they so play to the strengths of the format that exist already. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when, when I see this card, here's what I think. I think I'm unless I'm playing against a deck with Lightning Bolts, I'm going to steal an artifact. The next turn, I'm going to play Gush and Faithless Loot. <laughs> and frankly, if you gush into this, I mean, this, this fits very well into a Gush mold because... The whole plan for Gush is turn three Gush, right? Yep. Play, replay land, play land, um, you know, to get your third mana, cast this, then play Faithless Uting, discard your excess land, uh, and just getting business. So this this guy is like, you know, it's going to be a lot of good card value. And then you mm-hmm. also get card value in the late game, so that, you know, all the extra land you can just turn into business. So Yep, and plays well, as you said, with Gush, also with Jace the Mind Sculptor. Yeah, and but, with but almost pretty much every other card selection card you're going to have in such a deck. But in a Gush deck like Blue Red Delver, this this card can really shine because mm-hmm. you you don't have max artifact acceleration, so you're curving out here, and all of your extra mana is just going to be discarded to the faceless faceless looting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's but uh, in the process you can be really disruptive. You can take you know, I guess in a workshop deck you can take a Lodestone Golem and trade. You can steal you know whatever creature they have. Um, you can even take take up their mana or take their tangle wires or whatever the case may be. I think that while gain control of target artifact is pretty much the top of the curve in terms of a Planeswalker's mid-ability, in terms of an anti-artifact mid-ability, yeah. it's, it's worth noting that it isn't, a, it isn't a cure-all against modern workshop decks. Gain control of target artifact is pretty poor on uh, Sphere of Resistance, for example. That's true. That's true, but it really does shine against Lodestone Gold. It really does. So uh, within reason, I think you still definitely want this effect against workshops. Yeah. But it won't it won't single handedly win you every possible game. In fact, in some games, it might only be a speed bump because let's say profitably, for example, that you have Dak in play or you can play him in response to a metal worker. That's not typical, but just for example, your opponent maybe you force their first threat. For example, they play a metal worker on two, you play Dak Faden on two. You clearly, you're going to want to gain control of their metal worker yep. just to slow them down. Yep. But that's not winning you that game necessarily. No. Your deck is on one loyalty. You took their metal worker, but next turn they just play another big land and another, like a forge master. Now, you did the right thing with your deck because he stopped it from being much worse. But now he's on one loyalty. He can't take forge master. You've slowed the game down, which is one of your goals against most workshop decks. 
but he didn't single-handedly win you the game. So I think it, it is deceptive to look at game control of target artifacts as it's always going to win you a game or it's always going to be a two-for-one because, yeah, now they have to trade with their own guy. That will occasionally happen, and it will be great. But in a lot of other ways, Dak is just kind of like a one-for-one. Now, granted, you can pump him back up to two loyalty, and on the next turn, you can gain control of something else. But there's a lot of situations where you might be facing an insurmountable advantage in that one-turn gap. That Forge Master is going to come down. While you pump Dak up to two loyalty, that Forge Master is going to go active. But that's a fair and point. But, but I mean, it, it does neuter a number of things. It, I mean, mm-hmm. um, it, does. It, it neuters Smokestack, for sure. Definitely. Uh, it, it can really dramatically reaffect the Tangle Wire because obviously you're controlling the removal and stuff. Um, yeah, it switches the, the symmetry back in your favor in as much as still being a Tangle Wire in play is in your favor. Yeah, it... Um, because you're, you're, it's like a two permanent change when you steal their tangle wire. Right. Because one, the tangle wire is going to exactly. stay at the higher number and not tick down during their upkeep, and they don't have the tangle wire to tap. Exactly. And you know, even though they might have spheres, you could take a, one of their mocks, and even though they have workshops, you know, taking a mox when they have a sphere is is a pretty nice boost in your favor. It's also like a two mana swing. You took one from exactly. them and you gained one. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. There's there's lots of subtle two for ones to be had here, and none of that uh, that that don't just win the game. And it does really, it does really specifically hurt Smokestack because you can just nullify it. But it also tactically hurts Smokestack because if your opponent has a Smokestack with one or two counters on it, which is common, you land a Dak and steal some other permanent, even if it is just a Mox. You might put them in a situation where you two for one them that way too. They have to lose their Smokestack because they can't then keep maintaining it. Yeah, it is also worth worth just pointing out that it's very hard for workshop players to deal with it with this creature. I mean, there's nothing they can really do to remove it. You can't well, Revoker, just, Revoker can't, is a common anti-planeswalker. Yeah, I mean, but you can't dismember it. You can't duplicate it. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't stop by Null Rod. But yeah, Revoker is definitely going to be the go-to. I expect to see more Revokers once this card is legal. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, it just occurred to me too that especially at fighting workshops, multiple decks are very good. I could I could definitely see a scenario where a player plays Dak on three and on four, stealing an artifact both times. Huh. It's only one-for-one one trades in many of those cases, but that that sequence could get better and better against certain matchups depending on what you take. Like I said earlier, taking a Sphere of Resistance is pretty tactically weak, but if they're playing a Smokestack deck and they got the Tanglewire slash Smokestack draw but you can sneak Dak in maybe with multiple Moxen or something, then suddenly stealing those uh, spheres or some other innocuous permanence actually has value. Actually has an increased value and, and, and starts hurting them because workshop decks like Smokestack uh, are so based on that incremental advantage, that breaking that symmetry of having permanence, that it's a subtle effect that could win you more games than it might at first look. Yeah. Uh, if there's a card you want to steal, it's Worm Coil Engine. <laughs> Yeah, that's another. We're we're sort of ignoring the possible upside or top end of the curve here, but if you can get into the mid game against workshops through other means, your ingot chewers, your ancient grudges, this is a really amazing top deck in the mid game. Yeah, they land their I don't know. Yeah, they land their worm coil engine. They land their mid game Kuldatha when you're out of force of wills, and you play deck and take it. That game could quickly become you activating Forge Master for your own Blight Steel. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It only takes that their Forge Master and two Moxen to make that a reality. 
Well, that actually leads to another discussion, which is I think this card has created some excitement for the potential to uh, rebirth control slaver. Ooh, cool. Yeah, modern control slaver. The welder is already a thing occasionally in vintage these days, but yeah, very interesting. And it's, it's you know, three casting costs, which is what Thirst was at. Mm-hmm. You know, you can uh, steal the artifact that you want to weld out. Wow, that's right. That's right. You get free welder activations just even if your opponent's Moxon. Also, this card is main deckable in that the loot effect really is kind of agnostic to your opponent if you build your deck right. Even against something like Dredge, where you would think this card is slow and need not apply, the looting effect still allows you to speed up your possible game plan against Dredge, even in game one. That's right. You could be running the kind of deck that has a singleton Nile Spellbomb, for example. Yep. And that looting effect is even good at accelerating that plan. Yeah, I guess the question really is, Steve, is uh, how many decks does this go in? I mean, <laughs> existing archetypes, new possible new archetypes, as you alluded to. Uh, you, you've already mentioned a Gush deck. Yeah. I think it's pretty clearly it's going to be tried in Grixis. I think it's going to lead, as you said, to some alternate constructions for blue-red control. I think, I think it's viable in blue-red or rug Delver, as you put it. Yeah, yeah. And then on top of all those, there's some subtle directions that it could be pushing the format in and so you know um we we could begin to see disappear as is a singleton in some of those decks we could see it even as a sideboard card Mm -hmm. um we could see it you know like you said in addition to the big things like being an engine in a gush deck or or in a control slaver deck um it's just not clear what happens when you get an abundance of playables like this how people sort sort through that and manage that in, de- in terms of deck construction and play. I mean, you know, what happens when you can play with Tesseret, Jace, and this thing? And, and among, <laughs> you know, it's an abundance of riches, I know. Um, but, uh, um, you know, we just haven't really had that. That That's a good problem to have, but it's a, not a problem we've had many times. So it'll be really fascinating to see how it all shakes out. I, I don't even... I couldn't even begin to predict uh, <laughs> with any with any degree of precision. You know, um, look look at the overlap of this and Tezzeret Agent of Bolas. Yeah, my goodness. Uh, you, t- you take your opponent's Moxon and turn them into five fives, <laughs> or or you know, tick him up and then st- you steal two Moxon in the mid game with this and then drain them for an extra yeah, four. I'll steal I'll steal your Voltaic key and activate my Time Vault. <laughs> <laughs> oh right, in Tezzeret too, of course, of course. You can curve out with this. You play you play Dak on three, <laughs> and just it and just, just loot, and then and then you let's say you loot into an extra accelerant. And you play Tezzeret the next turn. <laughs> yeah, your opponent doesn't know you're on Tezzeret. You've just played Dak, so they play out their Voltaic key, thinking they're going to try and speed up their kill, and then. <laughs> I don't know. It seems kind of foolish to play a key into a deck that has four loyalty, but. But I, I really, I mean, I really. Maybe I got the timing wrong, but the the message is still there. Yeah, I mean, but there's there's so many different strategic things this brings into view. I mean, the the high level this card could bring back the whole idea of, of dumping a big artifact and using Goblin Welder. It could also, it also mm-hmm. at a strategic level, it it really does give you an end game for gush decks. You know where you're churning the unnecessary unneeded land and fetch lands into meaningful utility you know mm-hmm. um into ma- meaningful high quality cards um you know it, it, but but then it also raises much bigger you know those are huge strategic implications those have big strategic you know, implications but there are also you know 
uh, much less visible potential impacts. And just in terms of what does it mean in terms of deck construction when you have like, you know, 90 really good cards that you could put into a 60 card deck? How do you <laughs> slice that up? You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. what's the marginal value of one deck fading relative to this third Jace? Does that mean, are we going to see a lot more just like singleton type deck, singletons appearing in vintage decks? You know, it's it just, who knows? I feel like it's like, you know, we're pushing in all these different directions and we could, Dak Faden could be, you know, again, I mean, partly as a consequence of restricted list policy, we have more viable draw engines th- than ever before. You know, could Dak Faden appear in a Lansdale deck? You know, I mean, is it a, in a, in a, as a cyborg card in addition with like things like Ingotur? Is it the kind of card you might want to use if you're Lansdale? Yep. Um, you know, it, it just... It, I mean, we haven't even, just to bring this to a very fine point, we've never seen a Planeswalker before that might have a more, a natural home in a sideboard. Interesting. That's, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, They've seen it with a few in standard. Uh, who's the blue-black one? Ashiok. Ashiok was a sideboard Planeswalker in standard occasionally, but it hasn't happened in vintage. Yet, until now, possibly. Yeah. So. That's a really interesting point. It didn't even occur to me. I, I don't think I've ever built a deck where I had a Planeswalker <laughs> in a sideboard. But you, yeah, that's fascinating. I think there were some minus six builds that might have had Jaces or Tezzerets in the board, but that was for transformational purposes. Right. Anyway, your your point is well made. Yeah, and and, and I mean, we talked about Time Vault, but certainly this guy is a three minute answer to Lifestyle Colossus. Um, you know, not I, just I, answer. What? Not just answer. Yeah, <laughs> Trump. <laughs> Trump. Yeah, no, that's that's true. I mean, all trumps are answers, but this is more than an answer. <laughs> this this deck is the one card version of the uh, metamorph your colossus, duplicate your colossus. Go. <laughs> I think going to immediately begin by by put. I'm going to put one of him into my UR Delver deck for sure, and probably in the Steel Sabotage slot. Makes sense. I think there are plenty of sideboard existing sideboard cards that should be at least tested with Dak as a replacement. My, yeah. I think the most obvious one from a one-to-one comparison is Vaishino Heretic. From a mana cost and yeah. functionality standpoint, right. Dak really supersedes oh, Heretic. For sure, for sure. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's obviously blue and he's recursive and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though. And faster than yeah. Heretic, too, I mean, by a Again, term. again, Workshop decks are just going to have to be using Revoker. But that only reinforces the, the desire to use this card, because you want to diversify your Planeswalkers. So they have to choose... I mean, they're going to have to choose Jace, right? Oh, that's. I see your point. That's fascinating. So they they get the Revoker before you get your Planeswalker. Which one do they name? I, I think most people are going to sort of be used to naming Jace. Yeah, because if you name Dak and they have Jace, you lose out big time. If you name Jace and they have Dak, they could take your Revoker, but their Jace is still turned off. You're still at a disadvantage, though, because you don't want them having your Revoker. That means you can't attack with Lodestones and such on the ground anymore. So in that sense, the diversification of Dak really did... As you put it, it really did kind of solve the revoker problem, for lack of a better term. But but it yeah, also it really to, puts a lot of pressure on revoker. It has to serve too many goals. But it also it also goes back to my point about design. You know, what does this mean? Are we going to see? You know, it may be the case that Jace is just better, but we're at such an abundance of riches that people have to make hard choices of playing. You know, of of really trying to figure out. You know, how do I maximize my situational utility as opposed to mm-hmm. just pure power level or whatever the case may be? You know, very similar to your observation about a sideboard planeswalker, 
have we had a vintage deck that had three different planeswalkers in it? Yeah, not that I can think of. I, I recall sort of Mark Trogdon playing with Tezzeret, Agent of Bolas, and Tezzeret, but he may have had Jace. Yeah, there have been several two planeswalker builds, and maybe you're right. Maybe Tez 1 and 2 plus Jace has happened, but this might, Dak might really standardize that kind of thing. You might see yeah. Dak, Jace, and then X, Dak, Jace, Tez. And, That's and kind this of a kind default. of card also creates a kind of fluidity between the main deck and sideboard. I mean, you think about what cards are used in sideboards. Cards are used in sideboards that are generally considered narrow. But a planeswalker is by definition not narrow because it has multiple abilities. You know, it's like a charm. It does multiple things. So uh, you, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me to see a deck that say has a deck in the sideboard and a deck in the main deck, which is really weird from a conceptual level, <laughs> <laughs> but but nonetheless completely understandable. Yeah. I agree. That's a good point. This one is going to be really hard to predict, Steve. Yeah. I mean, pretty obviously going to appear, but it carves so many new niches yeah, and, exactly. and also replaces existing functionality. So many big effects, so many subtle effects, so many effects in terms of deck construction, sideboarding, you know, the kinds of synergies that it has. It really brings it, draws out things that maybe we haven't used in a while. I mean, again, it goes back to the simple question, the first observation. Steel Artifact is not playable, and Careful Study, is, while amazing effect, is proven not playable. But the ability to use them iteratively is a totally different animal altogether. And you, you've got to think, like, does this make cards like Deep Analysis playable, Goblin Welder playable? You know, cards that have once proven themselves in Vintage but faded for a variety of reasons. Um, it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens. Um, you know, I can't help but think that, like, the, the Italian players who love, like, T1T, you know, who are obsessed with in, in accumulated knowledge might really like this card. <laughs> oh, yeah. Pl- that's plenty of player styles, deck styles, construction methods. Yeah. are All of them will have some kind of appeal from deck. People who just want to improve their sideboard cards yeah. are going to swap swap them in for various existing things. Yeah. People who want to build new decks are going to do and, that. Control Slaver, like you said. And one of the things that, that's crazy is even if you could iteratively, uh, iteratively careful study, the fact careful study can never create card parity. You know, it can never, it can never, it can never, it's never card neutral. It'll always cost you a card. Whereas right. if you can. This, this activation can actually be card neutral because if you steal an artifact, careful study, steal an artifact, you're, you're back at a card parity, you know? <laughs> you've, uh, and, actually, yeah. actually, you're ahead. In, in theory, you, yeah. Well, in theory, you've increased your card quality by a ton, too. By a ton, yeah. yeah. And for decks that are built around things like Yawgmoth's Will or Snapcaster Mage, you, you can sort of draw back right back onto that, you know? Um, so, um, you know, the point is that, you know, steal artifact, already you know, replaces itself and then the careful study you're not actually wasting a card to cast it so it's just pure neutral you know um, but in terms of pure quantitative card advantage whereas um but you're increased dramatically increasing your card quality interesting in comparison to kiora for example uh, as i was lamenting earlier kiora doesn't have that potent take over the game kind of feel and even though dac doesn't do it with card advantage I have a feeling that there will be, it will not be unusual for games, even if Dak has no steel artifact target, for it to feel like he really has taken over a game just through pure card selection and possibly a few other key interactions. Maybe it's Welder, maybe it's Flashback with Snapcaster, who knows, but it could be that two or three Faithless lootings in an otherwise normal vintage control matchup, for example, is actually enough to push you over the top. Yeah, I think that's right. Plus, he just inherently synergizes with so much else in the format. Dark Confidant, 
preordain snapcaster as we said simple yeah. things like ancient grudge yeah. just all kinds of existing things he's not necessarily like as brutal as a trigon predator is going to be against a workshop deck right like, his capacity to do other things just makes him so valuable so he's like if people just start main decking him you know you gotta think that can't be good for workshop <laughs> <laughs> no it can't and people can yeah and people can main deck him with very little drawback Urkel's Recall is a one-of because it's super effective and you can get it with Merchant Scroll and Mystical and it's good against Blightsteel and multiple arc sh- uh, workshop archetypes. Dak might become that card. Right, right. You might see less Hercules. People giving up on the, 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 you know, the big heavy hit against workshops in favor of this card that's just got so much better utility against the metagame. Right. You know, Steve, we haven't even touched on his ultimate. Yeah. <laughs> Most Planeswalkers, of course, are not there in Vintage for their ultimates. But at the same time, the best ones have the ultimate as an option or a finisher. Usually meaning you've already won the game, but this is the thing I'm going to kill you with. That's what Jace frequently does. That's what Tezzeret does right. once you've got the key vault going. Dax ultimate, though, is kind of a different animal. You do actually have to actively do something different with your deck like a well- and the way you play. Yeah. And it's it's kind of funny with all the synergy that he has with his other abilities in the format. His ultimate is actually not synergistic with anything in the format. When did this card become legal? Conspiracy is released on June 6th. Okay. So it becomes legal that day. Yeah, we may have to do a conspiracy set review. Yeah, to your point, the ultimate is is I think considerably weaker than we're used to than we're than we're accustomed to. Yeah. Um, but the first two abilities are not only sufficiently strong, but also sufficiently synergistic and versatile slash flexible. They really they really do compensate for that. And I, I think it's just worth emphasizing a point that a number of people probably criticized him, you know, vis-a-vis cards like Ralph's Eric, but that's that's looking at it from the wrong direction. You know, if you're looking at it narrowly as a workshop answer, yeah, he doesn't actually kill a cre- you know a lodestone golem off the board or mm-hmm. whatever, but his multiplicity of uses, for example, so you know, in his general utility, make him a main deckable card, and to the extent that people main deck him, that is his, that again, that's not pleasant for workshop. <laughs> and you won't be as a as a player with deck main deck, you won't be unhappy drawing him even in a room devoid of workshop players that's right so you get the benefit of addressing workshops while still having a good card too yeah unlike for example Hercules recall Hercules is a great silver bullet against shops it really sucks to draw it in most other matchups yep hmm. fascinating what do you think we should do about our predictions we think we should hold off until before june and predict then yeah let's do that let's predict in june just so it's a fair assessment evaluation at the end yeah i think that's the right thing to do sorry to our audience who may be really hoping to hear that here, here and now but you should uh, pick them up anyway if you as soon as they're out <laughs> yeah well yeah i i don't even want to think about how much this card is going to cost because he's probably good in multiple other formats well okay it's conspiracy so it doesn't go into standard so that will actually help keep his cost down but I haven't even considered what this card does in Legacy, which also might be unfair. Less so. Yeah, it's probably going to be best in Vintage, which is great. Best in Vintage, yeah. Fascinating. All right. Well, any other thoughts on Dak, Steve? Really exciting. We're probably going to have, rehash this conversation a bit in another month or so. For now, our listener question for the week is, which card that is not Mana Confluence do you think is going to see the most play in Vintage from Journey into Nyx? You've heard our opinion on the matter, and there is 
according to our assessment, one clear answer. But we've been wrong before, and there is some there's some opportunity for discussion here amongst these other cards. So let us know. You can hit us up on Twitter, on email, on our feedback from any of the sites where this is posted. Thanks for listening to episode 35 of So Many Insane Plays. Our Twitter is at many insane plays. Our email is so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. We did not for the game.